Hey there, art lovers. Mike Hendley here, and I'm excited to welcome you to the Drawing Inspiration Podcast. In each episode, I'll be bringing you along my journey as I explore what it means to be an artist. I'll be chatting with other talented artists about their experiences and sharing some of my own insights and reflections on my art journey. So come on in, get comfortable, and let's get inspired together. Episode 101, The Artistic Journey with Mark Taro Holmes, Urban Sketching, USK and Beyond. Hi everyone, welcome back. We're now beyond 100. <laughs> and uh, it's been a crazy couple of weeks. I tell you, it's uh, there's been so many messages and emails coming in, and I haven't replied to everyone yet. And I just, I'm so thankful for, for you uh, in supporting this podcast. It's been an incredible journey, and that episode 100 was a lot of, lot of effort to, uh, to make and kind of weave that into a narrative. And so I'm so glad um, so many of you uh, enjoyed it and reached out and talked about uh, in, in greater detail about how the podcast has impacted your journey. So I just wanted to say thank you for all the emails and messages. I appreciate them every time you send one to me. Don't stop. I want to keep the conversation and the community going. And I love hearing from you, whether it's sharing a piece of art or sharing another artist that you found on Instagram or elsewhere. Uh, I really appreciate you and I thank you for being part of this journey and uh, that we're in this together. So I'm just going to cover a few updates and then we'll jump right into the interview. So since the last podcast, I did do a workshop for Nature Journaling Week. And so it was a little bit short notice, but I was able to pull something together and it was just an opportunity to sit and draw. It was fun to be able to sit down and, and we worked on a piece of milkweed, a milkweed pod and um, an eagle head. And it was just, it was a great chance to kind of just chill out and, and draw and um, I'm, I was looking back at the video and I will link to the video so you can actually watch this, but, uh, I probably should have worn a hat <laughs> or not had the camera pointed at the top of my head the whole time. So it's, it was helpful in the, in the sense that, uh, it was a workshop. I probably would have done a few things differently, but, uh, it was a learning experience and the video, I th probably would have changed things a little bit. So I'm going to, next time I think I do this kind of thing, I'm going to have a, uh, an additional camera pointed right at my pencil so you can see in greater detail what I'm doing because I realized afterwards and I, I think that Bethan had mentioned partway through it that you know can you zoom in a little bit so I think it was not only an opportunity to think about the content but the presentation and I just want to up it I just want to elevate <laughs> once again back to my theme this year every time I do this kind of thing so I appreciate all of you that were there and if you want to go back and experience it, you can do that and it'll be up on YouTube, but I'll include it in the show notes here so you can go directly to it. And if you can support Bethan and the Nature Journaling Week, it's never too late to make a donation to what she's done. And she had like just so much going on. I'm just so impressed with somebody doing this and not charging anything for it. So I know she's enabled and inspired so many people through Nature Journaling Week. So thank you again, Bethan, for inviting me and for putting this on every year. It's wonderful, and, and so many people appreciate the effort, including me and you doing this kind of work. So the other thing I wanted to mention is I'm speaking at another conference this year, and that is the Wild Wonder Nature Journaling Conference. So this is a series of online classes. There's 30 teachers and speakers, including me. Uh, it'll be September 13th to 17th. The uh, tickets haven't gone on sale yet, but they will be, and I will be doing a workshop on mastering graphite. You know, when I look at the list of people that are presenting, it looks kind of exciting. I was at this last year as an attendee. I'm looking forward to being a presenter, and 
also hoping that there's opportunities for us to mix and mingle as they did last year through various uh, kind of Zoom events. Uh, so I'm hopeful that they'll do that again because that was a really nice way to connect with people in between sessions or I think it was in the evenings after the last one or lunchtime. I, I don't remember, but I feel like it was like once a day, maybe twice. But that was a fun experience and I hope they do something like that again. So keep an eye out for that. The tickets will be going on sale soon. And I will make sure to mention in the podcast when they do, you, you'll see a, a post on my Instagram as well when I know the tickets are available and I hope to see you there. So the other big thing I'm working on is my fall etcher course. And so this is once again, another drawing course. <laughs> I'm going to be doing some watercolor and ink courses as well. Uh, that'll be on my own platform, but this specific one is for etcher. It is a kind of intermediate course on drawing. So it'll be six weeks. I am trying to schedule it so there's two lessons per week and there's going to be homework. We're going to be talking about contour drawing and, and fur and animal movement and it's all around drawing better animals. And so we're going to be exploring the tools like this is going to be quite comprehensive. I, I've kind of laid it out and I'm thinking, hmm, <laughs> there's a lot to cover here, but I really, really want to kind of get this down into one cohesive course which will kind of pull in some of the stuff that I talked about at the Nature Journaling Week, in addition to that etcher course that I did around the uh, bullfrog. So if you want to get a sense of what this will look like, that bullfrog course on Etcher's platform, uh, Etcher Studio, will give you a taste of what's to come. It'll be six weeks, and so there'll be, I'm trying to think about two lessons per week, and so it'll be like 90 minutes or so per week for six weeks. And then there'll be a seventh week where we do a critique. So you can share uh, materials and there'll be more details as we get closer to this. But the whole intent is there's kind of a feedback opportunity for um, the seventh one. And so once that becomes available, I will share that in my story and my feeds as well as my newsletter. So I'm really looking forward to this longer course. And that'll be coming out, I think it's the 1st of October. So it's October, but whatever the first Saturday is, I think that's our plan right now. But um, you'll see more coming. And I've got to take a new headshot photo and <laughs> put together some more materials. But I'm excited about this. I'll be spending a bit of time over the next few weeks putting that together and doing a bunch of recording. And um, yeah, this will be fun. So I hope to see you there. If you listen to episode 99 with Sarah McKendry, you know that... Uh, or you'll hear near the end where she talks about, I'm going to send you a kit of oil paint because I haven't done oil painting before. And you know what? She came through. <laughs> Sarah's awesome. She sent me a, uh, a kit of, of some brushes and a little bit of paint. And you know what? I went and bought more paint because <laughs> I, I have ideas of what I think I may do. I bought a big two foot by three foot canvas because I'm thinking... As per uh, Eric Romero, when he was on the podcast, and I'm thinking all the people that I've had on talking about oil, like Kimberly Brooks, um, they're all just chiming in my head. Even Mark, who you'll hear from later in the podcast, everyone seems to be quite uh, supportive in this endeavor. So I've got all the tools together. I'm excited about this. I've got access to one of Sarah's courses as well. And so I'm lining up to start into oils in July. So I'm going to be sharing my experience through the podcast, through the newsletter, and probably posting stuff on Instagram as I take this additional journey. Uh, but keeping in mind, I'm still going to be drawing. I'm still going to be using acrylic and doing the watercolor. Um, this is just another experience for me. So I'm excited about it. And I'm not trying to go too big into it because I went and bought some more oil paint and it was like, wow, this is way more <laughs> than watercolor. 
but uh, I needed kind of a base of a few other colors and uh, I'm ready to go. So I'm just holding off on everything and finding some time in July. I'm going to take some time off work and uh, spend some dedicated time on oil painting. So I, uh, I don't know what's going to happen, <laughs> but we'll see. I hope I don't fall in love with it because uh, I, I feel like I'd be cheating on, on graphite and watercolor and ink and acrylic as well. But I think I can find room. So I'm looking forward to that. And always, I'm always interested in learning something new. You know, I've got, <laughs> here's a funny thing. I've got a bag of these nuts that you can buy to carve. And I've got a little carving kit. And I'm looking at them thinking, I haven't done this yet. So there's something else. Anyway, I will get to oils and I'll share my story with you. So the other thing I wanted to mention is that I think I may take some time off from the podcast this summer. I'm not sure when. So I've got re- episode 102 recorded. And I'm going to go through and edit that and release that in two weeks. And I'm not sure what I'm going to do after that. So I'm going to try and take some time off. I may skip one or two episodes and then come back a latter part of August. Uh, I don't know yet, but I will announce it in a podcast that, uh, you know, the next episode or whatever date, uh, I'll give you a date when I'm coming back. But I just want to take some time off. I've got, once again, this Etcher course that I'm focusing on and a few other creative endeavors. I'm going to be taking some time off work to spend time with my family, but also spending time with my art and trying to balance the two. I feel like I'm going to just take a little bit of time off with regard to the podcast, just to kind of recharge, focus on some creativity, and then come back to it and then go full force into the rest of the year. So um, I will keep you in the loop. And uh, I thank you for waiting for me <laughs> while I do that. And I'll come back and uh, we'll, I have so many people lined up and I'm really excited about uh, the kind of the paths we're going to take with this. And so I'm, it's not that I'm not coming back. I'm just going to be taking a break. So I think that's it for updates. Now let's head into the interview. When I started venturing into the world of urban sketching a few years ago, one of the names that kept coming up was Montreal-based artist and author Mark Taro Holmes. Mark has worked as an art director and conceptual artist in gaming for years, but has also been able to explore his interest in watercolor as well as oil. Acknowledged by prestigious societies and a contributor to the artistic community through his work with UrbanSketchers.org, Mark's impact extends far beyond his brushstrokes. We talk about his book, The Urban Sketcher, a trusted guide for countless travel sketchers and journal keepers worldwide. We also discuss his book, Direct Watercolor, which complements the annual 30 by 30 Direct Watercolor Challenge. To talk about his creative journey, I welcome to the Drawing Inspiration Podcast, Mark Taro Holmes. Hi, Mark. How are you? Hi, Mike. Nice to meet you. Thanks for the invite. Nice to meet you. I thank you so much for uh, joining me on the podcast. Your names come up a few times, and I thought I have to have this guy on to talk about his work and his journey. That's great. I, I'm always surprised to hear that kind of thing, but I guess I've had a blog out there for a long time, and yeah. Keeps coming up. That's great. <laughs> and you like you've done so much in so many different areas. We're going to get into this, whether it's oil or watercolor or digital, uh, and urban sketching and everything else. So uh, this is going to be a jam packed episode, I think, around your journey and where you've come from and where you are now and where you're going. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm really excited to get into this. But I always love to start with you know how we start into creativity, and t- for many of us, it happens when we're a child. Sometimes it stays with us through uh, childhood and into high school and university. For others, we revisit it, uh, as I did when I was 40. But I'm wondering for you, was creativity something that you were into as a child? Was that the kind of kid that you were? Yeah, I always love this question. I I was not. um, I mean, I was a reader as a uh, quite young, 
coincidentally, my, my father worked in a secondhand bookstore. So we could skim books off the top when people came and traded in books. So I, I had a huge library of science fiction fantasy. And uh, so this is the time when they were all hand-illustrated. So I was a huge art fan. Guys like Michael Whalen uh, was one of the big guys at the time. Um, and Brom, I don't know if you uh, know this fantasy artist, Brom. He's, worked, uh, he's working right now, I think, on the Diablo video games. Oh, wow. But uh, yeah, so other than consuming art, I didn't make any art until age 19. So on my 19th birthday, I moved to go to college, moved out of town, and had to form a whole new circle of friends. And I took the opportunity to announce that I was an artist, and I started drawing. And I moved to college, and you know, you get to reinvent yourself. And I said, I always wanted to be an artist, and I, I knew I was going to be an artist. The thing is, I didn't want to do any bad drawings. Like, I couldn't draw, like anybody who, doesn't, who isn't an artist yet. And I'd, I had realized at that point that uh, if I'm going to ever do it, I better start. I don't know. I read enough stuff that I had this idea of what, how to be an artist or something. So I said, yeah, now's the time. No one knows me here. They don't know. I've never done this before. I say, I'm an artist. And I started. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a great way to start. So many people struggle with the title artist, but leading with it is a, is a great way to, to maybe set expectations for yourself, right? Yeah, I, I, people have that conversation like, uh, when did you consider yourself a real artist or, or how do you know you're a real artist? And some people say it's because I sell paintings, but I think you can just declare yourself an artist. If you say you're creative, then you are creative. I mean, you must look at contemporary art, right? Anything goes now. Yes, <laughs> absolutely everything. You started, uh, you called yourself an artist when you were 19. Uh, you were into writing. Did the stuff that you were reading uh, like, a, you know, you're talking about science fiction. Mm. Did that weigh heavily on you? Did you feel that you had these characters in your head that you had to put down on paper? Did mm -hmm. they contribute to what you were doing? Did you feel this, uh, feel compelled to to share your visuals of these stories that everyone yeah. else was reading? No, I mean, that's how, it, that's how I got into it, is I, I read all these fantasy science fiction books and comics, uh, that, that sort of thing. I was never into superhero comics, but European comics and Japanese comics. It was always strange fantasy worlds that I wanted to to bring to life, and and I'm um, from that generation. That what I did is I played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons, so that is really where I started. Was drawing D and D characters. We'd sit in the gaming sessions. I'd sketch like reportages of what's happening. You know, here's with the time when your character died. I would draw that little scene. So yeah, it all started with this kind of fantasy gaming. I thought I was going to be a book cover artist. That was my, my one dream in life when I was a kid, is I'm going to illustrate these books. And I would collect books based on their covers. Like, you know, people say, don't, don't judge a book by a cover, but I always said, that's ridiculous. You can see how much the editor thought this book was going to succeed by which illustrator got to do the cover. Because it, it speaks directly to the budget. So if they had one of the top guys, an artist that you knew, like uh, like Boris or Michael Whalen, then you knew this was a good book. So that's how I chose what I was going to read. <laughs> yeah, I can. Uh, I was heavily into science fiction, uh, like Asimov and all that kind of stuff when I was a uh, when I was a kid. And uh, Chris Foss uh, was a guy. In, uh, space. Do you remember Chris Foss, spaceship artist? No. Yeah, no. he was a British guy. Yeah. Sadly, I wasn't into the artist as much as like I. 
I did not, like, you know, whether it was Frank Herbert or, or whomever, I, I just didn't think about the art. I just thought more about the story at the time. Yeah. yeah. I, I never played D&D, but I always admired the people that did. I felt like I was, I, I, I just felt like I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> I had all the art books for the, the like, the um, the Dungeons & Dragons at the time. I'm trying to remember. It was called Forgotten Realms. Yeah. So there were a number of, uh, Larry Elmore was one of the big artists. So these names have slipped out of my head, but I had all the, the making of art books for the D&D stuff. I would read those more than I would read the game supplements. And uh, whenever the science fiction book artist put out a book, I, I would have, buy that kind of stuff. like that. The art of the Hildebrandt brothers. They had mm-hmm. a couple of books. Yeah, there's a, there was a, a Greek guy. I think his name is uh, Achilleos. Chris Achilleos, perhaps. I don't know if I'm saying that right. But I had all those art books of that kind of heavy metal art. And... <laughs> No, all those, uh, yeah, yeah, big inspiration. So, not much to do with what I'm known for now—the urban sketching. But that's that was my childhood imagination. You dropped a bunch of names, and I'm going to take this opportunity to remind the listener that I I put together really good show notes. So, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, "What were those names that Mark dropped? What were those <laughs> artists?" Don't worry, I will find them. I will find some link to them, and I will include them in the show notes. In addition to everything else that we're going to talk about, so I just wanted to make that mention. So you decided you're going to be an artist in college. What was your plan <laughs> to, to then well, actualize yeah. that? I mean, I, I had been reading all these, in, any anything I could get my hands on, like interviews with book cover guys, and I figured I'm going to learn to draw, and uh, I'll do these book covers and work for the publishing houses. But it, I never actually did do any of that. Um, I did, uh, when I went to university, did a, the things you do at the beginning where you don't know you don't know why you're there, so you just take a bunch of courses. And I realized that my art wasn't getting anywhere, or I wasn't learning as quickly as I wanted to learn on my own. So I had to go to art school. I dropped out of official university and came back to, uh, so that was in Ottawa, actually, Carleton, and um, went to the Alberta College of Art. I'm from Edmonton, Alberta. And I said I was never coming back to Alberta, but I came back to go to the art school there. And there were some people that did a lot of magazine work, but there was nobody who did that science fiction fantasy stuff, and certainly nobody who did comics. So I had I had great teachers, but I didn't ever get into that world. I never never did end up doing that kind of art. Um, but what I did learn from art school, besides you know just the skills that you learn, uh, I ended up working in video game design. So that's the modern equivalent, I guess, or the of of the book cover artist. You're my job was called concept artist, so I would uh, sketch the things that we're going to have to build. So you're you're one of the people that's visualizing that world. So that was what I loved about the book covers was the people who brought the world to life, and that's what I got to do in my own little niche. And I did end up working on a lot of Dungeons and Dragons games in that space. That's cool. You remind me so much of a guest I've had on here a couple of times, Rob McCollum. Uh, because he started off in comics. He worked with Stan Lee, I think, on one of the comics, and then uh, he worked in um, in doing uh, concept design. So he's he, he's responsible for Star Trek Discovery and It. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's and exactly that kind of Same job. kind of timeline, right? So, or yeah. same kind yeah. of uh, a layout with that. Well, in fact, everyone that I went to school with who could draw, so I went to art school and lots of people didn't draw. They did graphic design or they did whatever, collages. There are all these... There are different kinds of art forms, but mm-hmm. anyone who could actually draw from their head ended up working in games. So it was the, the biggest employer 
of the actual technique-driven artists in my generation, and I think it still is. People who are drawing for a living, there's really not many other jobs. They all work in video games or film. Just to put some perspective, what are some of the games that were around at the at your time? Because I probably played them, but I'm just wondering <laughs> when you. <laughs> well, you know, I and I wasn't a video game player when I was a kid, so I didn't actually come into the industry being that experienced. I came in from the art art side, so they needed artists. But you know, there was the Mario Brothers and and all that. Um, I worked on fantasy role playing games, so Final Fantasy, I guess, would have been one of the biggest ones from Japan. And there were American or Western role-playing games. You know, these are the kind of games where you explore a big fantasy world and you start typically as a, a young peasant on the farm and the <laughs> enemy comes and burns down your village and you're cast on, you know, they always have this hero's journey kind of Luke from Star Wars kind of story, right? Yes. So the, the Japanese were the ones that were making those big, sprawling, epic adventures. So yeah, Final Fantasy is the one, it's the big one I can think of. I'm trying to think of how old games like Fire Emblem or Zelda are, but it, those kinds of games, like Legends of Zelda, were the few things that I had played. And I, we ended up, so in Edmonton, Alberta, is this where I'm from, is this company called BioWare, and that's where I worked. It was the only game company in town, and uh, they were hiring up anybody who could do this kind of work, right? It's sort of specialized, that you're a computer nerd and an uh, artist. So we ended up making Dungeons & Dragons games and Star Wars games, and, you know, they went on to be world-renowned for games that are based on fantasy stories. So it was really just this stroke of luck that I was born in this city where this one company existed, and for that chunk of 20 years, they were really the place where you went to make these weird stories. So it was just fantastically lucky. And so were these, these were computer games? Were they also physical games? Like, uh... No, it was, uh, you pl- played on the computer. You, uh, okay. you would play with other, with other people, um, you know, over the internet, uh, or by yourself. There's sort of like an interactive book, right? You're, there's a lot of reading in these games. The characters right. will say, oh, I need you to do this adventure, and then they open up a big window, and you read the story. So it was one of the few companies where there were writers that worked for the company, and they would write novel-length quantities, giant novels. Uh, full of text like went into these games and they're all they're all buried in the books that you find and the scrolls and the traveler's tales somebody has to write all that stuff so we had a writer's room like you would have on a television series today yeah it was just an incredible place to work like an imagination factory wow that's pretty cool just to go back to your bfa because you know i've had some artists that have no formal training and you did get your bfa at uh, acad mm-hmm. what do you feel that you pulled from that that you applied to that career? Like, how did that uh, catapult you into into what you were doing? Let's see. I mean, there's the technical stuff, right? So they do. I went. I went to this tech school. So Alberta College of Art and Design was originally part of NATE. The, what does that stand for? Northern Alberta Institute of Technology. So you would go take plumbing, electrician, or graphic design. It was just part of the trades. And they had a culture that the policy, that the instructors were working professionals. So in the art school, they were working illustrators or graphic designers that had living businesses. So I went there because it was the opposite of the fine art kind of academies, like, you know, uh, University of Alberta had a fine arts program that's well known internationally. 
for weird things like large format sculpture. Is that U of A is well known for steel sculpture. <laughs> but anyway, Alberta College of Art was like this. You would learn practical skills. So I wanted to know how to draw, like realistic stuff. So I took this, this illustration course that was kind of unique. And, I, you know, I haven't stayed in touch, but there are various rumors that, that it's even maybe not how it's done anymore. Like we did tons of figure drawing, drawing from the live model. And I think those types of, that type of art education is, is fading a bit. So you, I learned a lot of just how to draw, how to paint, how to draw. So that was amazing. Great opportunity. And you learn how to, of course, teach yourself things, like how to do the research and be a thinker. So it's worth it to go to school just for all those mind-expanding things. But the real reason, the real pragmatic things, is that, so I got this job at BioWare because one of the other guys in my class got a job there. And then subsequently, uh, I got a job in San Francisco because a guy in my class was working there. And one of the people uh, I am, who was in fine arts when I was in graphic design there was Kenneth Scott, who ended up being an art director at uh, id Software, which is one of the, the giants in the industry. So this kid from Alberta was working in Texas, working on Doom and all those incredible id games. And he eventually worked on um, uh, a 365 studio, I think they call it. Anyway, he moved into the new Microsoft studio that made Halo, was the art director there. So, you know, you have this cohort of people that you came up with that are spread throughout the industry. And they used to say this about the record industry. There were all these people from Alberta College of Art in the record industry. Because they had graphic design skills, and they were creative, and they were Canadian. So they were pleasant to work with and cheap. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So there's always a Canadian from uh, Alberta at one of these big studios. And that, uh, I mean, it's an old boys network or whatever. Though mm-hmm. it, was, it was, uh, wasn't as bad as that when I came up. But uh, yeah, it really made a big difference. Having the degree and having the connections, you couldn't do that job. Uh, just coming from nowhere, I think. So physically, it's it uh, changed my life. It saved my butt. I had a career for as long as I wanted it, like twenty some years, because of this. So, yeah. Do you think? So you talked about you wanted to learn how to draw. So you felt that that program was successful in addressing that, but you think it's probably not the way it happens now. Well, I have heard these things like life drawing is not a core required part of the curriculum anymore. I I better not talk too much off out of my seat of my pants because I haven't stayed in touch with school. But these are the sort of things you hear that the academic tradition is maybe declining because, you know, things are now more... Art has changed. Fine art is not about technical ability anymore, which there's pros and cons, right? But in the fine arts, I think it's safe to say it's not about the mechanics of drawing anymore, right? It's a conceptual sort of business in the fine arts. And then in the graphic design world, Obviously, Photoshop and photography changed everything. Um, editorial illustration isn't a thing as it used to be, right? So my teachers, most of them, were the newspaper magazine, uh, you know, cover of Time magazine guys, right? It used to be they would have all these illustrations on the cover of Time magazine. These guys would do that kind of work, and I think that's pretty much gone. That it's a illustration as a, you know, a successful professional career. Is in trouble. I, 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 I certainly didn't do it through my livelihood. Nobody I know that went to school did the freelance illustration that you used to be able to do. So, yeah, 
I'm, I'm rambling, but that's whatever you asked me. That's how I got onto that. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. I, I mean, I know that they they added a character design program at ACA, so they actually because so many kids were going into games, mm-hmm. they put in this this character design program. So you could take fine arts, graphic design, which was everything to do with advertising and the web, any any kind of commercial art you could imagine in this one department. And then the third department was character design. Super focused, specialized topic. The other, the other two departments are everything to do with art and everything to do with commerce and character design. So that's how important they thought it was. Yeah, and then, you know, something I, I have not talked about on the podcast at all is obviously the AI impact. And we don't have to get into this. I think it's complicated. Hmm. but It is fascinating, uh, though. Yeah, it's going to change it, everything. Yeah, it, it is fascinating, and it's, it's really another tool. I mean, I hate to hear all the prompt engineering that's happening around kind of things like mid-journey and all that. Hmm. But mm-hmm. um, it, I just wanted to mention it because so my day job is working in health research around software development. And one of my... Uh, programmers told me that um, he's building characters for uh, a fantasy mm-hmm. role game that yep. he's playing, but he's building them with uh, Midjourney. So he's building the cards yep. and everything else. And I thought that was a really interesting application of of the tool. And um, it's going to be interesting to see how these locations like ACAD and, and others are pivoting to find an opportunity for this, but still being able to provide the foundation. Yeah, there, there's a lot of controversy about it. And obviously, we probably don't want to get into that because it's just being decided on a social level. Mm-hmm. But it's, I think it's inevitable now that the tool exists. I'm not so sure I'm worried about the, about the plagiarism aspect of it. Like the, so Midjourney is just one AI that was trained. They, they, cut, they cut some corners. It was trained on publicly available art. But it is totally fair to say that artists I loved, like Brahm or Michael Whalen, you could... You could type their your, their name in these things, and you would see how it's copying these guys, right? But that's what I did when I was a student: is I would just copy their paintings. So, but my young artists take their human brain and they imitate the artist before them. The computer did the same thing; it just ingested all these things and it learned from the people before them, right? So, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I worry about the copyright stuff, but that's because I'm not trying to live as an illustrator, right? I would be a lot more upset if I was. So there's that. I said I wasn't going to talk about the controversy, and then I talked about it. <laughs> but anyway, the idea guy, like the, the concept artist, you're the idea guy. Like they say, we want a scary monster, or we want a beautiful hero, or we want a fantastic place. And you have to invent it from nothing. So you, your job is visualizing ideas. So even if the robot is drawing everything for you, you still have to be like the, the taste maker, the... Like I could easily see, so I'll say it another way. When I worked at Microsoft, they said, we have an infinite amount of money. Just pretend there's an infinite amount of money. If hiring other people will solve your problem, then go ahead and do it. Because we spend more money developing or putting on the lights than we do developing video games, right, across our companies. So just spend money. So you could hire people to design like 500 versions of something and pick the best one. So it took a whole bunch of time and energy and uh, and it paid for all these people's salaries, people living in China or Eastern Europe. So now it's going to be the AI. I would be much more upset if I was a a contract worker in Ukraine that I am immediately going to be replaced by this robot, right? But the art director's job is still going to be the same, sifting through the concepts and deciding which is the one I pick, right? So 
I think it's going to be good for create, truly creative people and bad for people who are just the hand that executes the design, right? We used to call that, in art school, they would say, you don't want to be the wrist. The wrist is the guy who just, like, does the drawing. You don't want to be the right. guy who shades in all the pens, all the trees in the background, right? You want to be the brain, not the hand. So I think it's going to be a creative boon for, for people. We're just going to have an explosion of content. People will be able to play any game they want instead of right now. It's very narrow, right? There's only a certain kind of entertainment that gets made because it costs so much money. So it's all dudes shooting stuff, right? So we should see, a, uh, I think, a real renaissance of, of uh, creative options becoming available to people. So I'm, I'm pro-AI because, and are you listening? My, our future overlords, I support you. <laughs> Robot overlords, I'm on your side. <laughs> yeah, I think there's some, uh, there's some huge opportunity and, and I agree about the, I never really heard it described that way as the wrist, but you know, I know some people who are using prompts and probably not that creative, but just feel that, you know, they've got access to mid journey or Dally or Dally two or whatever it is. And look what I created. And, um, I don't know. You engineered something, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're creative. So I think there's but, an opportunity. But the, the, the truly creative person, right, can get in and do something. Like we we wanted to propose a game to Sega that had uh, that was a completely nonviolent game, and they just said, "So what do you do in this game?" So we had all these things about it had to do with flying over this landscape and planting trees. It was very I don't know. It was a fun idea, whatever. But they but it would never be made. They're like. We don't get it. What do you what do you do? So there was going to be all this flying and growing, regrowing this uh, environment with a lush forest. And they're like, yeah, but what do you do? Who do you kill? Like they just couldn't understand. There were no enemies. There was nobody to fight with. So if we could have made that game essentially for for free, putting quotes around it, using the AI, the AI to generate the artwork, maybe that game could exist, right? But if you have to pay people big studio rates to make things. They're just going to make another military shooter because that's that's what makes money. And that's all they're going to make. They're never going to make anything else. So that yeah. that's what I mean. That's what I. That's why I'm pro AI. Yeah, and I think that, and then we'll we'll get back to your journey, but just on the other bit on the AI, um, I think for those who are doing realism like I do, there's an opportunity to take some reference photos that you have licensed to use. So I, I mm -hmm. get mine um, online at this place called, I think it's wildlife reference photos or something. Mm -hmm. So you have, you know, you can use this as a reference photo, but then you take two or three of them and combine them together or expand their background. And I've been playing with the new Photoshop beta oh, that yeah. allows you to do regenerative, um, mm -hmm. you know, kind of scenes around your images. And it is surprisingly good at that. So if you decide you want to modify your composition a little bit, you can now bring in like a tree or clouds and visualize mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. and then go off and paint something. Mm -hmm. and so that's kind of exciting. I tried to do it with the humpback whales. I, I have uh, one of a, a, a cow and, and her calf. And I said, you know, can you put some more in the background further away? And it was the most hideous animals I've ever <laughs> seen. <laughs> <I've> yes. <laughs> like, when it makes mistakes there, uh yeah, like sometimes they're too real. Like right. that horrible mutation shouldn't exist. So, can I ask you a question? As a you're a person who draws photorealistic things, have you ever had someone ask you why do you bother to draw this when the photograph already existed? I used to. I used to. I just don't think those people are in my conversation pool anymore. And it, <laughs> it's not an intentional thing, but I've had people ask that. Like, why do you? Especially when I was doing graphite art. 
Uh, and I still do graphite pencil work, but I'm doing acrylic, and now I'm going to be trying oil for the first time. So oh, we're going to have to talk about yes. that. <laughs> but uh, I've explained to people, I think, and, and I'm comfortable with this as well. Like, you know, it's fine if you think a photograph serves what you need it to be for how you want to capture the moment. But for me, it's not about the end point. It's about the journey. It's about getting into that Zen state, that flow. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's the experience. Sometimes I don't really care how it turned out, or I'm, you know, trying to convince myself I'm not, because I really enjoyed painting it, or I really enjoyed mm-hmm. drawing it. It's not because I'm trying to create a photograph. Yes. Okay, well, that's that's what I have, that I have always thought, that it must be because you actually like those 300 hours. You enjoyed every one of those 300 hours you spent on that right. painting. That's amazing. I find that amazing, because I have no patience. <laughs> so, uh, Yes. And I haven't spent 300 hours on, on an image. I've probably spent 60, I think, on one uh, at most. Okay, but all I, right. I, I, you don't have to tell people that. I'm trying to build you up here. So. Sorry. I meant 3,000. And it's the same reason I think people who take photographs don't take it because they assume it's art, right? Some people take photographs because they want to document it or they want to scan something. Other people take photographs that are really, truly art in, in, mm-hmm. the, way they've rent, in the way they've captured that moment. And so... Um, uh, you know, I would say that uh, art is art, and we all have a way to do it. And that ways may change, and we're going to get into how your ways have changed. <laughs> but uh, I, I don't think there's there's anything wrong with it, and I think it's it's an opportunity to to explore. I, w- I did a recent workshop where I was talking about why you should draw with pencil, and, and you may disagree with me on this, but I believe pencil is a great opportunity to learn about value. Because you are restricted to the pencil. And so if you want to not just draw, but shade something, it teaches you about value that you can then translate to watercolor mm-hmm. and acrylic. And I feel that my once I understood that I had that skill, watercolor became easier for me. It took me five or six tries. But once I understood that I was teaching myself value when I was doing pencil work, Mm-hmm. that I was able then to explore that even more in watercolor and realize, wow, I could do the same thing with watercolor slightly differently, but I understood value. Mm-hmm. And now you can do it in color. So you have yes. that extra dimension, but you had that foundation to, to build on. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. interesting how you, there's many different ways to it, to yes. come to the same place where we advance our art and then we find out we can do the thing the other person has always been doing. So I never shaded anything with a pencil. I, I was just a line artist drawing lines. And so when so watercolor for me was now I can fill these lines with a solid shape. And it all became about tinting tinting these drawings and then gradually as the ability built up I found I don't need the drawing anymore. The shape is created by the edge of the color, right? So mm-hmm. if you fill the shape correctly then the drawing appears magically but by the way the color meets the background. So uh, we both ended up being tonal, but uh, yeah, totally different approach. Yeah, so that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. and and you know to that point. So you so you're at you're working in game development for twenty years. Mm. Were you still doing kind of the the art for yourself, the analog stuff, or was that like were you one hundred percent? Because gaming must be a hard like that's a hard that must have been a lot of your time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very time consuming. How did you, how did you transition? out of that like how did you get to where you are now was it watercolor oil like how did that journey happen yeah so i i always i had always learned the the workshop or the environment for learning for me was life drawing i loved life drawing drawing the figure 
it's just something I responded to as a subject. I, I just enjoyed it. But also, it, you have this, you know, the 5, 10, 15 minute pose environment, right? You come into the workshop and you're going to have these quick poses. So you had to capture the subject in those five minutes. I felt like that's where I was getting the most of my learning because you're, you're doing so many drawings quickly. You can make mistakes quickly and move on, right? So I think you build up, you learn faster by drawing faster. I, I think, I mean, you may have had, had a different experience that the people who tend to be perfectionists, I did, you know, the academic artists that will measure things and spend a long time planning, they sort of feel like I need a certain amount of time to do a good job. So I sort of felt like I need a certain amount of drawings to do a good job. I want to get those 10,000 drawings in. During the time, all the time that I did all this digital art, I also, I mean, I went straight from art school into working. So I wasn't that good yet. I knew that there were many, or tons of people were better than me and just things I couldn't do. So I always kept up life drawing. My first experience as a, a blogger, an internet person, was on Flickr. I don't know if you remember that yes. old website. <laughs> it still exists. Flickr's still yes. around. There's an app. So uh, I would do life drawing and post it there. And um, yeah, that was always how I kept up. First, it was ink drawing, uh, pen and ink, and the ink washes, you know, the dipping pens and splashing ink on top. And then I graduated to watercolor. So you don't see too many people doing life drawing and watercolor, but it really is a great sketching medium because it's so fast. Uh, and I, you know, you would maybe go to a workshop every once in a while where they let you do oil painting, but mostly you, you're working with drawing materials in life drawing class. So that's how I learned watercolor, is how I kept up with traditional art. I always um, volunteered to be the guy at the art studio. When you're working at a game studio, generally there's a certain amount of money for training. So uh, generally they have a life drawing class. Like in, you know, they, they would have them at Disney uh, in the old days with animators, you know, cartoon Disney. They would have life drawing classes because people had to be able to make realistic gestures, like poses that looked like life, right? They would even draw animals from life. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so I always ran those courses at whatever place I worked and, uh, yeah, kept up with that. So that's how I kept my hand in the traditional art. And... What ha what happened with urban sketching? And at some point, that's that's part of my journey. Is that it? you know I went to school, I learned all these things, I was working in games, but I did become obsessed with this business of traveling and sketching on the street. So that was because I had always been a character designer in the games, but the majority of a game is not the characters. Some games only have one character, and all the rest of it is the environment. So I had to learn how to draw the worlds around it. One, and my biggest weakness, I've never managed to learn perspective. I didn't take it in school because I went to this, it, like I say, the technical skills are eroding. So I never took an official perspective course. I, can never, I can't force myself to learn those type of rigorous things. So I just learned how to cheat my way through perspective. But I knew I had to learn to draw the real world outdoors on the street. And I started going to sketch meetups. I was living in San Francisco at the time. And there was this thing that predated the urban sketchers movement as we know it today, that was called Worldwide Sketch Crawl. And that was started by, uh, I believe it was Enrico Casarosa, his name, who was an artist at Pixar. They would have these events where they would say, we're going to meet downtown in Chinatown and we're going to sketch all day. And uh, I would go to every single one of those so I could get my, my, my experience in, so I could learn. Because I at some point I would run into things at work that I just couldn't draw. So I had to learn how to do this. I realized by accident 
that I've been a video game nerd all my life, playing Dungeons and Dragons in the basement, all this classic nerd behavior. And then I realized I like being outside. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I'm 30 at this point, right? Like, this is great. Wandering around and adventuring. And it helped that we lived in San Francisco, so it's a beautiful town. And I'm like, wow, I want to do this. So that's what happened. (laughs) That's how I... And at that point, I said, I need to build an exit plan so that I can get into a world where I'm doing this instead of sitting in front of the screen. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So it, what was it? I mean, everybody's going to have their own answer for this, right? But what was it about being outside? Like, was was it a mix of the media and the environment? So where it was like, I'm tired of looking at a screen and a Wacom tablet or whatever, right? Yeah. So a lot of, especially film related art, it's super perfectionist. It's like you're they're just trying to get the most realistic possible thing. So there are a lot of demands about well, I'm gonna say quality that that you just learn to make a realistic image. So let's just say it's more rigorous. So what I loved about sketching and watercolor is the whole mentality that uh that there's no such thing as a mistake, that it's a spontaneous observation. I love drawing fast. So there's that, that it's the urban sketching, it's right there in the name that we celebrate sketching a quick impression and you're recording it's this artistic magic right you're standing in this place and you draw it from life maybe it only takes a few minutes the details that end up on the paper are always the most important thing there like if you if you have to draw a place that's full of life it's super busy and you have five minutes what what ends up on the page and what gets left out the brain can do that it's like magic you just get the best you're only drawing the good stuff Right? You, know, you don't draw every boring little window when you run out of time. You, you draw that fantastic roof line or you know, the, the way this tree is growing up right through this house or whatever. Like you, you get uh, just the best part of wherever you're standing is distilled into these drawings. So they, they look way better than a photograph to me. When you look through your, your sketches afterwards, you're like, wow, that place is amazing. And it could have just been a, a back alley somewhere, but it, mm-hmm. it, the art elevates the real life, right? So I, I love that experience of exploring through your drawing, you know, which I'm sure a photographer would say the same thing, right? That they take right. their camera, they go out into the world and they're finding all these places, magical little slices of real life, right? It's even, I think it's 10 times that for an artist as a photographer because you, you're interpreting with your brain while you're there. So, yeah. The really compelling thing about urban sketching is it, it introduces a, an element of extraordinary to what is an ordinary image. And it could be, uh, like I had Stephanie Bauer on and she was talking about, you know, an artist that was drawing a, like a gas meter or a water meter somewhere. And mm-hmm. Like yep. it's like you can find it everywhere. And uh, I, I just struggle to find the time and get out and do it, but I miss it so much because it's, it fills yep. the soul. <laughs> There's a guy, uh, Pete, uh, Pete Scully, Peter Scully from UC Davis, I think. He was famous for drawing fire hydrants. And wherever he went, he would find the, what the local fire agent was and, and draw that. So, you know, he draws other things, but he, uh, every new, you know, you're in Europe or you're in Asia, there's a, it's a different kind of fire hydrant than the one at home. And so he would collect another fire hydrant. <laughs> <laughs> the dogs must have left him. <laughs> that's, that's funny. Um, and, and it's good to, because you can always find them. So I, there's nothing wrong with that at all. Mm-hmm. Is, is there a certain kind of urban sketching you like to do? Are you still doing it now actively? Well, 
not nowhere near as much. I mean, there was a okay. period in my life. I do go through sort of serial obsessions. So working in video games is a perfect thing for hyper-focused people. You can get to work 100-hour weeks. <laughs> and uh, for a while, I was sketching like crazy. Like, I would go out multiple times a week. And so I am not doing it anywhere near as much. There are all kinds of reasons. There was some family health stuff going on. And uh, yeah, there's all kinds of reasons why we ended up. And I don't do it anywhere near as much as I used to. I started doing more studio work. Also, you know, your work, your personal artwork evolves, right? So there was a phase of, I'm going to say, 10 years where I was really into urban sketching. And then I was starting to maybe chafe a little bit about what could be accomplished in a single sitting. Or, you know, I started to think that I needed to paint bigger or be, I don't know, do more masterpieces. And you can only carry so much stuff with you when you're painting. So I felt like I should... I should move up to the next level of art or something. You know, I do get a little bit bored uh, doing the same thing, right? So I thought that maybe I was ready to graduate out of it. And so for a couple of years, I didn't, didn't do very much urban sketching at all. But then I find that I miss it. I really do miss going out and being on location. So I had to find ways to, to stay in touch with that. I would say, th- for me, the same thing is about pencil work. Like, I'm trying to do lots of pencil work but I'm also trying to, I'm really interested in acrylics and now I'm going to try oils probably in July. <laughs> um, Cause one of a pr- my previous guests sent me in a bunch of oil paint and brushes mm. to try. So I have no choice now, but to try it. Um, but I, I, well, I, I'm excited to hear what you think. I mean, my first experience is, was why didn't I try this sooner? Uh, you, I'm sure you, you, I can see this painting behind you in our, we're, we're looking at each other in a, a video call while we record this and yeah. i can see that you've got good handle on the acrylics but the the flexibility of the oil is pretty amazing well that's what i'm looking forward to and i like that's my first acrylic so i haven't even really explored acrylics very much like that's mm. like wow. m- most of the work most of the painting i've done has been watercolor mm. um and even that was three years ago i started doing that so for me that the acrylic has been a little bit frustrating because it dries so quickly, so I've changed the, right. you know, I've added some medium to kind of delay that. But I've had so many artists on the podcast who are like, got to get you into oil, got to get you into oil. And then this artist, a fellow Canadian, um, she will sell you a kit of paint and brushes and mm-hmm. include a course on it. So she's like, I'm going to send you something. And it arrived. And it's very like, good. There we go. Yeah. So we'll, well see what I, happens. I'm sure you will love it. I mean, especially <laughs> the more realistic you want to be the more the advantages of the oils come forward. It's a, like You can just keep going with it, right? You can just keep, we can get into glazing and just make it more and more and more refine, refine the forms and graduate the shadows. Yeah, the more realistic you want to be, the more it will pay off. Awesome. So I want to get into oils, but I just want to, to, uh, to highlight the point about the graphite is, for me, that's my, that's my, my happy place. So uh, I will spend a bunch of time on acrylic, like uh, a bunch of time. I spent some time on this tiger and I haven't finished it yet. I need to get back to it. But I got to a point where it's like, I need to get back to pencil and I'll do a bunch of pencil drawings and then I'll do some watercolor and then I have to go back to pencil. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's, I don't want to lose that. I, I feel like pencil is important to me, but I still love the exploration in kind of the visual arts with regard to drawing and painting. Like, I don't think I'm going to get into sculpture, but I don't know. Somebody can convince me otherwise, but <laughs> <laughs> I think for now I've I've got my uh, 
I, I think I've got opportunity to explore and, and digital as well. I've got an iPad. I've been using Procreate forever, and uh, that's been exciting. I, I'm curious with kind of your transition into watercolor and urban sketching. Did you, and, and maybe even now, do you miss any digital work? Are you still doing that? If the, if you're doing a, a commercial project, like for for money for someone, then you should absolutely do it digitally. Even when I do watercolors uh, on contract, right? If I'm doing a book illustration or something in watercolor, mm-hmm. it goes through a digital phase where I, I scan the watercolor. And sometimes I'll, I'll end up having three three paintings and then I need to take parts of each painting and combine them together. So I do that in Photoshop or color changing or whatever. So digital is the way to go for anything where a client has to approve it because you can change anything at any time and nothing you did is fixed. I mean, imagine you spend those hundred hours on a drawing and then they say, oh, we want it to be winter now instead of summer. So, like, it just makes sense. Save, it will save your life to work digitally. So there's, there's sort of, I don't question the advantages. Yeah. But I don't enjoy it as a, as a media. It's not interactive in that sense. It just does exactly what you tell it to do. So everything, every single thing in a digital painting you did so 90% of watercolor, you didn't do anything, right? The, right. You just put down the wash and touch this here, and then the watercolor moves on its own, right? Yeah. So you, you're dancing with the paint. It's interactive, and it's surprising you and testing you. And you have these weird time frames, like when the paper is going to dry out on you, you got to get it done before the, the sweat area dries. So there's all these demands on you. So digital is just, in some ways, it's too easy. It's like it gets boring because everything can be perfect, right? Yeah. And so let's let's finish up on watercolor, then we can get into the oils because I, I, you're in that space now as well. But um, with watercolors, like you, I think you suggested this, and I, I may be mixing that with a YouTube video that I saw. But you initially were working around sketches, but now, like when you do watercolors now, are you sketching anything or is the watercolor the sketch medium for you? Yeah, so I'm, that's the perfect case. That's the ideal case. I went in and uh, shot off my mouth in public, right? So I, <laughs> I, I wrote this book called Direct Watercolor and I did all this talk about how this is the ultimate kind of watercolor working directly because there was a natural evolution for me where I used to draw every single thing. So I would draw every leaf, I would draw the clouds, draw the reflections in windows so there's a pencil line around everything. And then way back at the beginning, I would ink those pencils and erase the pencil away. So then I'd have an ink drawing on top of my pencil drawing, and then I would fill it with color, blah, blah, blah. So, so these, I mean, that's what you have to do when you're a beginner. So you have to craft these images, do anything you need, you need to do to get the image done. But it was so laborious, the drawings might end up getting stiff. Uh, I might not have the attention span to finish it. So I, there was a time when people were talking in urban sketching because the whole movement of urban sketching is relatively new, right? So all these artists came into it together. And if you go back and look through urban sketching on the web, you see this march across the world of all these artists going from like drawing with markers in black and white or tinting their drawings with splashes of color and moving towards watercolor. Because when you go out there and you draw every day, Five, or you draw all day, three days a week, you're you get better really fast, and you realize you can you can drop the pencil line under your ink and just go directly with ink. And then you realize you can stop coloring your ink drawings. You can just go directly with color. Speed is important in urban sketching, 
I just I just read a post on Facebook. Uh, I'm trying to remember who this was. I think it was Rita Sabler. She said I needed to get rid of this really noisy boat that was in the way of this drawing of Venice. So I started drawing the boat because if you draw it, it'll leave. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it totally works with people. If you're trying, to, if you want to get a person into your scene, start drawing them, and they'll get up and leave. So, uh, yeah, speed is important in urban sketching. Because first of all, if you're only in whatever you're in Germany for three days, you only have three days, and you have to eat and you have to sleep. And during that time, there's a limited number of drawings you can do. So, the faster you can do them, the more you're going to see. Right. So, yeah, that's that. That's that's I think what drives you to watercolor. So. What I always say about watercolor, the reason it is the fastest medium is it has the largest brush. Because you, you can pour the water and fill the entire page in one, one go, dump your water on the page, right? I can cover the, uh, the entire canvas in one move. With the oil painting, you have to put every brush stroke down, right? The watercolor, because it floods, it is the fastest medium. So I do believe that the, the best, the ultimate form of sketching is to do directly white paper, Take your brush and start. So you could call it alla prima, but people call it direct watercolor. Uh, and I did a lot of talk on my blog about how I've changed my ways. I will always do this. I'm committed to this. <laughs> but it's, it's also kind of difficult. And so I, I still, still, to this day, after 20 years, I might get a 50% success rate working that way. So, you know, some of the drawings just don't work. Like you, you, you blow the proportion or you, You've fudged the composition; it's not right, and that that drawing is doomed. Like if the if you're drawing a church and the spire is going to go off the top of the page, there's no point finishing, right? You you blew the placement on the page. So, so now I've come to this thing where I, I think the ultimate thing is to do very simple kind of doodle pencil cartoon, and I use a thinnest pencil, the point three. Though a friend of mine has this Japanese mechanical pencil, which he says is a point one millimeter pencil. And the leads just break all the time. But yeah. I use a point three, and uh, I try to do a drawing that you can't be a slave to the drawing. It's like a gesture, like a very loose doodle, just to make a the silhouette shapes, or even just a couple of dots for where windows, like the line where windows should be in a building. Mm-hmm. I don't want to draw everything anymore. Like I used to draw every leaf. Now I just draw a vague circle, and that's where the tree's going to be. So... Yeah. So then now people call me up on it. Now I'm painting online. They're like, I thought you said that you should have no drawing. <laughs> but so you should have as little. So now I say the goal is to be able to finish the drawing with as little preparation as possible. What is the least amount of preparation you need? So for, for people like Stephanie Bauer, some of the things she draws are amazing. You actually need to know how to do perspective and you might need to draw some lines and you might need to measure some things. You, mm-hmm. If you want a drawing as good as her drawings, you actually need to do those. So what is the minimum preparation? Which is, I don't know, maybe that's, <laughs> a lot of people don't believe that, right? They'll say, why, if you rush every drawing, all your drawings are going to be terrible. But I sort of say, if I do 25 drawings this way, one of them is like, I don't even know where that drawing came from. It's a piece, like I could never draw that drawing. I, I drew it, but. I drew it in a fugue state. Like one of them is amazing. It's way beyond my own abilities. And the other rest of them I can just throw away. Right. So you're you have to do this to get those spontaneous beauties. 
Yeah, I remember watching. Uh, I did. I interviewed Captain Tom in Ottawa. We sat over overlooking Parliament Hill, and we drew Parliament Hill together. And mm-hmm. our styles were completely different. And he's just kind of quick, few fountain pen marks, and in with the paint. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I was totally different at the time, and it kind of opened my eyes to seeing somebody do it that way. That I was like, I'm going to get loose on this now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's wonderful to see that. And I had. Um, I, I will have a uh, guest coming on after your podcast who actually referenced you and talks about this um, kind of dot, I forget what she called it, but the kind of a dot um, mm-hmm. planning uh, I method. Call, I, I call it a dot plot, just because I like to have funny okay. names for things. But uh, I, I actually, someone showed me out of this. I didn't invent it. I took a class from Jeremy Lipking. He's a, a portrait society portrait painter in, in Los Angeles amazing artist and he's an academic artist so he he probably was trained to do this somewhere else but if you place a just a, a tiny dot on the page that's the base of your subject and another dot for the head of your subject if it's a person or say it's the this church i mentioned if i put a dot down for where the top of the steeple is all i need is that tiny little mark just so that when i sketch the thing i don't go off the page right so even with two dots you can save you can save a sketch and then if i place two more dots for say the width of this imaginary church, like how how wide is it? So with four dots, I, I should be able to see the structure of the building, and then and then just immediately start drawing, because right. those are the the uh, they call it measuring the extents, the the farthest farthest left, right, top, bottom. Yeah, that's I, I when she mentioned that I was like, wow, I gotta ask Mark about that, and to hear it, it's like I. I almost do that when I, when I draw, and now that I hear it, it's like I should be doing that on all axes, like I, or, or both axes. Like I don't, mm. I, I think sometimes I do it along the X, but I don't think about the Y. And, you know, you get into mm-hmm. that situation where you have something that runs off the top or the bottom of the page, or you have to kind of squeeze things in or make compromises. French academic artists, the atelier tradition, they look for the center line of the subject. So say, typically it's a figure, right? The center line is not necessarily the exact center of the subject, but from a point to their head, down to their feet, maybe one foot is off to the left and the other foot is the weight bearing. So the center line is in between, right? But when they draw that center line, if you've seen those people holding up the plumb bob where they have a weight on a string, mm-hmm. that's what they're holding it in front of, the, is, that, is that center line. And then when they do the drawing, they're measuring how far to the left does this form go, how far to the right from that center line. So the, the whole drawing is checked against that. So it, it comes out perfect, right? Or it can, if you learn to measure that way interesting i just did a drawing course about um bullfrog how to draw bullfrog and okay. I, was just, I was just teaching people how to use kind of the elements that are on the bullfrog like the eye and other elements as a measurement tool you know this yeah. is two and a half eyes wide and and just being able to sure. leverage what's there right yeah yeah you pick uh, one thing that you can measure against so that's why we have seven head the seven head human right because the skull is usually the same size on most humans <laughs> Yeah. All right. Exactly. But I'm wondering about this exploration of oils because that looks really exciting. Mm. And and I'm wondering how how did that come about? Because I'm wondering if that's the journey I'm on. <laughs> so I'm wondering how you've you've come into oils now. Yeah. So I'm terrible with numbers. So I'm going to say maybe I started that in 2019. So there was a period where I thought that I needed to get more serious, and and I thought I wanted to become a fine artist. So, I mean, I've done a, a lot of different things, and uh, I thought, well, I could have a new career doing gallery art, right? So, but I knew that I needed a new portfolio. And 
I needed a new skill. So I thought I would take on oil painting the way I learn anything. So my goal was to do 100 oil paintings in a year. So I started doing 10 by 10. They're just small squares. And I, I don't know how many I did, but I did easily 100 of those. And then gradually building up to larger sizes. So I spent about three years painting oils almost every day. And, and this, is, this is my story of don't do this. I spent about three years painting oils almost every day. And then I went out to try to get into art galleries. And I got absolutely no interest. I have, never been, I have not been accepted in an art gallery. There just isn't enough space. So, you know, what, what it's come down to is there's so few art galleries nowadays. There are fewer than there used to be. If you go on Google Maps and you look across Canada, now I'm, I'm talking from a Canadian perspective, mm-hmm. you will find there's only like six art galleries in every major city that are important galleries. Two of them are contemporary galleries. Uh, one of them is probably state-funded, you know, a public gallery. And there's going to be one place that sells realistic painting. That's the top place in town, right? And then it, those people have a stable of artists. And the way, as far as I can tell, you get into those galleries is one of those people dies. And they need it. Then they're like, well, we have a guy who does representational oils of landscapes, or in my case, sort of neo-impressionist you know, contemporary landscapes. We have this guy who does it, and we're not going to just dump this artist to take you, right? So if he doesn't retire, he or they don't retire or, uh, you know, die, then you're not going to have, there's nothing for you here, right? So I'm also seeing this other trend that there's all these uh, one-person shops. Like, I don't know if you've looked, when you go to town, do you look around the art galleries and you see all these art galleries where they carry one artist. So it's basically a, a fellow or... I keep saying male because I'm male, not because art is gendered. But a person will rent, rent a space and show only their own work because that's the only way to get in a gallery is to found your own. So that's my rant on that. But you should, uh, basically, you should see whether there's a market for your work before you spend three years painting. <laughs> <laughs> so I have uh, a wall in my living room with, um, I don't know, it's probably 50 paintings on this wall. Um, so actually, I've stopped painting in oils because um, I literally don't have any more space to hang paintings up to dry. Uh, so I took a break. I thought, um, I'm going to have to see what I'm going to do with these. Uh, I love it. I really love painting in them. But uh, I also have like this huge stock of them. And I, I need to decide whether I'm going to make any more of them because they're sort of an have a lifetime's worth of these paintings. So, so yeah, <laughs> before we sort of... So I'm not a good example of... Uh, <laughs> how to become an oil painter because it is right now with the three to five years of, of working on it, it hasn't actually come to anything for me. I mean, I, I sell one once in a while, but uh, yeah, it's, it's not a, it does not seem to be a viable career any longer. And people will say that's because it didn't work for you. Right. So I can say, I don't think there's a job here. Right. And it could be because my paintings are bad maybe, but you know, I, I've, I'm a, I'm pretty sure it's not that. I think the paintings are good. I think how when's the last time someone you knew you know in your personal life bought a painting and hung it on their wall? Right. Right? Like people don't fill their houses with art anymore. I have friends that have houses full of art, but that's because they're eighty years old. I don't have any friends under thirty that have houses. <laughs> Never mind houses full of original art. Right. So I really think it's lost relevance in society. That the whole concept of of static oil paintings that go on the wall, you know? Yeah. Do you, 
like, do you regret that at all? Or do you feel the value is more than the, the pieces you did, like in, in looking at those? Well, those I mean, I don't pieces. regret it in the sense that I really enjoy doing it. I love looking at these paintings. Uh, I, I do sell one every once in a while. It was dumb to sort of announce to the world I'm, I'm quitting urban sketching and I'm going to be an oil painter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that didn't work. That absolutely did not work. So, uh, yeah, so I'm going to, we'll see what happens next. But, uh, so I don't regret it. You can't regret uh, time past anyway, right? Because it's over. So what's the point? Right. I learned a lot doing it. My painting got a lot better. Uh, I, I love all those paintings. Uh, so that was all great. If I had had to live from that money, I would be homeless today. So, <laughs> so there's that. Like for someone like me who's who's thinking about who will try oil painting soon, what would you share with me or with a listener who's thinking about trying oil painting? Because you did so much watercolor and then you transitioned heavily into oil for a period of mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that transition and the differences and, and w- what you found great about oils or what you found frustrating right. relative to right. watercolor? So, I mean, the great thing about oils is it's sort of a, what you see is what you get. Like when you mix a color in oil, it's exactly that color on the canvas. So, or panel in my case. So with watercolor, uh, you can't see what color you're mixing, right? Like the, the watercolors concentrate in the pans and you're adding water to it. And so you're looking at this dark puddle in your pan and then you put it on. So some people have, they have little test sheets and they test the mix. But I, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't do any of that. I just paint directly. So you just have to know what color you're going to get by instinct as a watercolorist. Because the more water in the mix, the more it will lighten as it dries, right? Because there's, there's more water in it. So the more water, the greater the color shift. But all watercolor changes color as it dries. Some people varnish their watercolors to bring back the wet look. But uh, that's kind of an old-fashioned technique. So with oil paint, uh, you just have more fidelity if, you're, if you are at all a colorist, or in your case, maybe value is the more important issue for you, you'll be able to just, it'll just be better because you can see exactly what you're doing, and it, and it never changes. So there's that. Uh, and then, of course, the, the marks don't move on their own. Like, you never get a drip, you never get a bloom. Some people call these things cauliflowers in the watercolor where it backwashes. Mm-hmm which I like, and I encourage it to happen. I do them, I add blobs of water to one spot, just dripping water into it until it does it. Um, but, um, so oil is just more reliable. And you can, something I've done is that if I don't like an area, I'll scrape off that area, but I selectively scrape each color off of that area and put it back on the palette. So I really, there's a, a miserly part of me that's like, hey, I can reuse this paint. Take it off the canvas and then repaint that area with the same paint. Uh, I do that a lot. W- one reason I've never taught oil painting is that I think nobody wants to paint the way I do. I paint extremely thick with the oil paint, like super, super thick. Some of it is up to a centimeter thick. So I put additives in the paint to make it thicker. I use that uh, cold wax medium, um, but I also okay. use um, marble dust. It's an old... Uh, medieval technique to put marble dust into your paints, uh, which they used to call whitening, but it's, it's calcium carbonate is mar- marble dust. So it's a stiffener and it makes the impasto more rigid. You build up thicker ridges. So I really like the effect of that. I said, I'm going to use the oil in the way that no other medium can be used. So I went as thick as humanly possible with the paint. And 
it's like uh, I don't know. That's the way my brain works. Watercolor is is this thin, paper thin. It's soaked into the paper, right? There's almost no surface to a watercolor. And in fact, watercolor, a print of a watercolor can look better than the original, right? Mm-hmm. You're not missing anything from a print. Whereas a print of an oil painting, uh, you're missing everything. You're missing all the effect of the texture. So the original oil is really a, a superior thing. Because I have digital skills, I have made watercolor prints, and I often say there's actually no point. I don't know why people are so excited about getting the original watercolor, because I, I have made prints that are better than the original all, all the time, frequently. Uh, anyway, so yeah, I paint with that, that super thick impasto, and it, it does, the cast shadow uh, from these raised marks actually serves as a kind of drawing. Like, it, it underscores the form. If you look at a, I'm going to say Velasquez, and maybe I, I've got this wrong, but uh, I'm going to say Velasquez, where they, or any of these old painters where they have like a Rococo environments, where they have, you know, that, that sort of swirly gold decoration in a Rococo environment, a lot of times they'll do that with impasto. And the, it physically casts a shadow, and the object just looks more real, because it's in the actual lighting of the environment mm-hmm. that you're in. So as the light changes in the room, the light changes in the painting. And it's doing things that uh, just make it look more real. You can, from across the room, you can see sharpness that, that isn't really there, but it's there because there's a physical edge to the color. So, yeah. So I'm a big fan of that. That's, that's what I think is, is awesome about oils. So you should, for things like, uh, like little hairs on animals, I'm looking at this tiger behind you. Mm-hmm. If the paint is physically thick, like people take the edge of a knife and, um, press press in a whisker mm-hmm. instead of trying to draw it. They like take the edge of a knife and lay it in one mark, or the edge of a credit card, for instance, and lay in a cat's whisker with a bead of paint, like you did it with a miniature caulking gun. So you can have that three dimensionality. It's just a pretty cool special effect. Hmm. Yeah. No. Oh boy, I got some work ahead of me. I think. <laughs> <laughs> and when you're doing these, what what tools are you using for the oil? specifically and i guess i should go back and ask you about the tools for watercolor but for the oil what kind of tools you're using yeah. to yeah I've, i'm always a minimalist i always trying to find a way to, to use the, the as few things as possible so one time i went painting and this was in california we were living in san francisco we drove up to marin county and i forgot my brushes but i'm out there we drove for four hours to get to this place and i'm like i'm gonna paint all i have is a palette knife so i I started doing these paintings just with the palette knife, and I'm like, I love this. It's actually a bit like watercolor, because you can load up the knife and fill 50% of the canvas in one move, like you can with a watercolor wash. So as I paint oils like a watercolorist, like I think about uh, the large, the big shape first, the structural silhouette. In watercolor, you work larger to smaller, lighter to darker. Uh, mm-hmm. So I've, I've worked with oil painters who just can't get used to working lighter to darker. Like they, they often want to do the dark colors first. So the drawing is established, right? Like they might do a high contrast, um, like an umber or sketch or whatever, right? And define the darks. And they say, that's how I see the full range of values in the thing. And then they can add white highlights to bring up the lights, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. But I work with a large, big shape and the lightest possible value and work work towards the darks so because that's how watercolor works so the palette knife allows me to do that i can just drag and you you need a bigger knife for a bigger painting so some people actually just use at some point a piece of wood 
Like you, you can just cut a piece of MDF and squeeze a bead of paint across it and drag it across your canvas and that's the sky. And then drag another one across and that's the landscape. And then start painting on top. Wow. So, yeah. So I love the palette knife. And the other reason is I hate cleaning stuff. So with the palette knife, you just wipe it off. It's so much faster than cleaning brushes. Uh, you never have to worry about an old brush dying. And the uh, color is clean every time you apply the color. Like in between strokes, the knife is clean. So every color goes on 100% fresh. Right. So some people like to load the brush and get multiple colors on the brush. But, you know, but that's not how I work. I like it to mix. I mix it on the surface rather than on the palette. Well, I mean, I mix the color I want, but I want it. But then I do it like cake decorating. I'm put the color down and i'm using the knife to stir it into the color that's on the canvas already so i love the palette knife uh, and then you get down to a point where you want some details and, and you have to switch up so brushes do come in or other kinds of scratching tools but i've learned to get 90 percent of the painting done with a knife it's funny you mentioned cake icing because when i i look at your work i the big tradition for us is we always make a mid which is kind of a quebec dessert french dessert okay. at, i don't know that one it's 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 so sinfully good because <laughs> it's a mix of kind of i think three graham cracker layers so i'm I'm kind of the engineer i do the the graham cracker layers my wife does the filling there's two fillings and then there's nicing on top and then i do this little pattern oh, that right. creates okay, the shingles yes. right yes, so yes you can, right. i, I think vachon makes a version of this yes. but it's premium moisson makes makes this yeah yes 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 right yeah and uh the one we have makes much better, but you have to let it sit for 24 hours so everything kind of congeals together. And oh, it's so good. But um, anyways, when you talk about icing, that's all I was thinking about is 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 like, um, and I've got a couple of palette knives here that I haven't used for their intended purpose, but I really love how you describe that to the point that maybe I'm going to do a little panel with just playing with a palette knife because that kind of experience of icing, that kind of movement would be something that sounds like something fun to try and i mean i see that you do a lot of figurative things like uh, animals right yes absolutely so you, you probably find it's not gonna it's that's not the tool for that uh so i when i did approach the oils and i i wanted to work in this impasto way i did make a conscious choice to do mainly epic landscapes so to be honest i am not putting in architecture or figures because i don't want to interrupt they they also function at, a, at an abstract level, these, these particular paintings of mine. So mm -hmm. I'm enjoying kind of the game of um, mixing and dragging this color and building up this incredible surface. And I always post detail drawings or detail photos so you can see these like close-ups from one inch away. And the surface is beautiful, right? But I have to choose things that aren't detailed. Like I've never right. successfully painted a, a figure or a portrait this way. Right. So, I, I mean, I think watercolor is a, the best medium for book illustration, for instance. Like, you, you look at, or it's at its best, when you're, you're looking at it in your hand. And oil painting is great for the wall, where you're looking at it from 20 feet away across the room. Like, it, it suits mm -hmm. big, grandiose forms. And so I have, when I paint a detailed thing, I paint it really, really big. So <laughs> I was doing some, well, for me, big, like... Uh, four feet squares i have these this uh, set of typewriters antique typewriters which is a classic subject for a still life painter so i did these and in order to paint them i painted them four feet square so that i could do the keys with the palette knife <laughs> <laughs> that's cool 
Yeah, I think if I used a palette knife, I wouldn't do a tiger or a lynx or something else. I would probably have yeah. to change my subject a little bit. Yeah, you want to do like a you know a marsh a marshland landscape, right? Yes. Or a desert. It's great for desert environment. Yeah, a marsh with a heron, all kind of yeah. relatively straight lines, right? Maybe yeah. a little bit fatter. Yeah. Yeah. Ever tried acrylic? Uh, so I I skipped to the oils. I have tried it in the past. You know that's what we okay. used in school. But I think it's the worst of both worlds. So watercolor, you have the flow of the paint, the, the the floating dispersed pigment, which you can do in acrylic, but not as well. And oils, you have the long drying time and the ability to. You know what the drying time helps you most in is on the palette. You can mix much more sensitive color because you can always remix the color that you have mixed on the palette. You can intermix. If I'm running out of a puddle, I can make a new puddle and intermix it with the existing pile. I can chop two colors together to get a half color between two. Like if I have two values, then I can get exactly 50% by just taking half the two piles and mixing them together, right? So oil painters do this thing, classical oil painters, where they make a grid. They take uh, pure black, pure white, and they just mix it 50-50. And they put that dot in the middle. And then they take that middle one and mix it with the black and mix it with the white. And that goes at the 25% mark, right? And then they take the middle one between each two color and they just keep dividing these piles in half and making 50% mixes. And they end up with a strip, a perfect gradation of from white to black and a pile of each color, right? So the, the, the fact the color doesn't dry in the palette allows you to make exactly the color you want. So you get much more color sensitivity. It's not the fact that it doesn't dry on the canvas, like the people say, well, I can always correct a mistake on canvas. That's not what's important about oil, because once you at a certain level, you don't make mistakes. Like after a while, that's not the issue. It's not fixing your drawing. You can draw already. The issue now is, or what you're getting out of the oil is this ability to make exactly the color you want. You'll find if you're into color, like I like to do these kind of abstract, um, pretty landscapes full of all these broken shades of mauve and grayed off greens you'll just have that sensitivity that you can't have in any other medium so you like the the palette knife when you were doing uh, with oils when you were doing the watercolor what was your because i think you have an opinion about sketchbooks as well right and i think it's probably yes well (laughs) yeah so i i had been i've been very involved in this society called urban sketchers and it tends to revolve around the sketchbook and there's a very good reason which is it's great fun to sit around and pass your sketchbooks around it's Mm -hmm. great fun I love it to look through somewhat a sketchbook of a trip or a themed book, right? But uh, when you're trying to do 10 drawings in a day, you after you've done the first page, what do you do with your sketchbook? So people, first of all, when you're doing it, everyone uses these clips. That, we call them bulldog clips in Canada. I think they call them binder clips in the States. So those black clips to hold your book open, right? And then you've done your painting and now your paper's wet. So... You can't do another painting until it dries, right? So it means you tend to only do one painting a day, or you have to carry two sketchbooks. So I've actually seen people come to workshops with like five sketchbooks in a bag, so they and they're all spread out in front of them, pinned open in the sun, drying while they work on the next one, right? So you're carrying all that stuff. I would much rather work on a loose sheet, especially the, the fastest way to paint is to paint three paintings at the same time. So you put in a big wash for the sky, and then it has to dry. So then you start your next one. And then by the time that one's done, you pick up your first one again, and that's dry enough to keep working, right? So this is why I prefer the loose loose sheets, loose pages. And then when it comes to like watercolor brushes, do you have a 
like I know you've talked about this. There's a page I'll link to where you talk about uh, tools and all that. Yeah, I mean, so for uh, I I like okay. I use a pointed round exclusively. I mean, I do. I will I have used a flat. I have used a cat's tongue, but basically, I use pointed round brushes because the tip is like drawing with a pencil. You can make the finest possible line, and then the pointed round tends to be longer than a round. So it's a the long long tapered head. The round is a little stubbier. So the pointed round, you can draw the finest possible hair line, or you can turn it on the side, and it's like the biggest flat. You can it's like a one inch. If you're using a number eight pointed round, you have the finest possible pen, and you have a like a one inch flat in the same brush. So and then if you scrub the brush and it and get the fibers to splay out, you have a lot mm-hmm. of hair there, so you can get these sort of fan like effects by squishing the brush, twisting the brush and grinding it into your palette. And then you can use those fans to do stuff like grass or clouds or soft, soft hatched things like that you might do with the fan brush. So the pointed round will do everything. So if you're an urban sketcher and you're carrying everything, you, you only need one brush, like maybe two, you want to carry a big one. And I like sable because it's stiffer. The sable hair, a lot of people will use a squirrel hair for watercolor brush, which is very nice for soft, uh, gradated wash but it's not good for drawing because they're not they're so soft it's tough to get a sharp line so i like this uh, the sable brush because it's stiffer but uh also i will admit synthetics have gotten much better over the last whatever decade sable brushes have also gotten much more expensive somebody one time said to me "Uh, i'm i'm vegan so what do i do because i don't want to use animal products so I did start using synthetics for that reason, and they're honestly just as good nowadays as a sable brush. I mean, they're not, they're 90% as good, and they're much cheaper. They probably last longer. Anyway, pointed round sable is what I will pick, but uh, synthetic works good too. And you're a, an individual that believes protect the white of the paper, no gouache, no... Yes, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I, I mean, I, I took a, a course, actually, from Eric Tiemens, uh, who is a guy who works in film. He, he did a lot of concept art on The Lord of the Rings. So you, if you saw any Lord of the Rings paintings, you might have seen some Eric Tiemens paintings. Uh, and so he uses the Dutch style, so he has white and black gouache, just two colors of gouache, white and black, and then a full kit of watercolor. And everything he does has some gouache in the watercolor. So they call it body color. So what I do, I, so I don't, I don't use white to bring back highlights. I don't believe that works. Sargent did it, but he did it with a, by like caking on the white. Like if you if you go to a museum and you look at Sargent's paintings where he's used white, it's physically thick, like it's impasto, like I was talking about. So mm-hmm. he may even have used lead white at the time, uh, which we can't, which you can't buy now. You have to make it yourself if you want it. So anyway. But I will use titanium white or buff titanium watercolor. And I also carry a color called gray of gray or gris à gris in French, which is a Holbein color. So it's got a tiny, tiny dot of black in it. So it's a very, it's like the palest possible gray. So I have those three whites. Now, like to make a sky, I start with the thalo cyanine blue and I add white and water. But I had the, I had one of either a warm white or a cool white depending, or even a yellow, to that thalocyanine blue, like a quinacridone light sometimes to get a sun, like a sunset kind of sky. So I don't carry a cerulean blue, I carry the whites and then customize okay. the, the lighter colors. Yeah. 
Okay, so you do use whites, but for not for the purpose of highlights. But not not for restoring highlights. No, when it comes to the, there's nothing never nothing's going to be as bright as the white page. And I like the sharp edges on reserved reserves. Tend you know when you're saving the white of the paper, you tend to get a nice crisp little glint off something. Uh, yeah, I definitely. And then I'm also really getting into putting in a base light a light base tone, and then cutting the dark on top of it and revealing the whatever the base tone is. So reserving reserving the under undercolor the same way you would reserve white so then right. you can get a same effect but softer if it's all pure white it's, it tends to be higher contrast right so you could even put down a fairly dark wash and then reserve to that uh, and get different effects right yeah you see james gurney does that a lot where he'll take a page and just tone it with something and then uses yeah, that yeah to pull that uh, especially with like a gradient right like a yep. blue to gold gradient or something for uh, again for sunset uh, yeah. Right. So I want to, I, I'm mindful of the time, so I want to make sure that we get to these uh, two wonderful initiatives you, that you've done um, and that we're in the middle of right now, and that is the, the watercolor, and then uh, we're talking about one week, 100 people as well, but maybe... Oh, yes, yeah. So uh, it is, we, it, right now, it is 30 by 30, so we do that every year in June, month of June. Uh, so it's on right now. I, I like things to be simple, right? Like I carry one brush and a little tiny paint pan like a so, you know three by five one of those little square tin pans and that's it one brush paint tray so this initiative if, as you call it the idea is what's the simplest possible way that we can that we can uh, sort of stimulate this high level learning so it's 30 paintings in 30 days so the and and that you post everything you do so the goal is to experience that flow state that you were talking about where you're you're constantly either making the painting or thinking about the painting for more than the usual amount of time. Like doing it for a whole month is more than most people get to do, right? In your daily life, you, you don't usually get to paint every day. Maybe you do. And you've, you've arranged this lifestyle with this podcasting where you get to do that, right? So this is like a little, a little pocket environment where we get to pretend that we're full-time studio artists. And when you get to the middle of this, when you get to day 15 of this, your, your work is in a state that you've never been in before like it's a it's a, a heightened state of sensitivity because you've been doing it every day and then when you get to day 20 you're you're really tired and you can cross certain thresholds of fussiness of like perfectionism that you thought you had things that you thought you would never let yourself do you'll just do because you start to get exhausted <laughs> and you can make some of re- your best work at that point because you're very you're very intuitive at that point after after having done this, it's really kind of amazing. I, I have a, uh, what do they call that? Like the zeal, the religious zeal about this topic, because it's something that you have to physically feel. What does it feel like to be in this state of having painted every day for an entire month? And you can't describe it till you do it. So yeah, I, I encourage people to try it out. Just back to a point you made, I do not paint every day. <laughs> so uh, I would love to get okay, to that. Okay, all right. All right. <laughs> I would well, love when, to get to that point. <laughs> when your podcast goes big, full-time, and you're the Joe Rogan of podcasting, then you'll be able to paint every day. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I think I'm going to have to do 12 other things for this podcast to get to that point, um, to be able to sustain and, and leave the my day job. Um, but I really love this exercise, and I I wasn't aware of it until uh, until fairly recently, and you know, for somebody who's done Inktober three times, um, mm-hmm. I did it digitally twice, and then I did it. I did a two uh, two foot by three foot piece where I put thirty one oh, different images. 
So now you have this piece. It's like a, a wall piece now that is, it is documented. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I know another guy who did Inktober. It was like a procession, like an accordion book. Uh, you know, okay. those folding sketchbooks yep. where it's all one long sheet of paper. Mm-hmm. So then he can unfold all 30 days into this big procession of characters. So I know Jake Parker. Uh, he worked in Dallas when I worked for Microsoft. He worked for Blur Studios. Okay. And that is, that's where I got the idea. I mean, for 30 by 30 was from Inktober and Jake's initiative. So we've been doing it for six years, and I think Inktober must be much longer. How, how old is that? I don't is know. Is that like I, f- 15 years old or like 20 years? Maybe 12, yeah. maybe something. Yeah, I think yeah. it's got to be getting close, like around 12 yeah. or 15 years. Yeah. So that was, you know, and also, do you know NaNoWriMo? Yes. National, yeah, I've done National that once as well. Yeah, National Novel yeah. Writing Month. So that was those two things. I was like, why is there not one of these things for art? And of course, turns out there are quite a few of them. Uh, besides Inktober, there are other ones, but, uh, but this, I think ours has this, and I say, I, I'm, I didn't, it's not just me. Nothing I do is me. I, other people give me ideas and then I broadcast them, right? I'm not actually that smart. So, uh, Uma Kelkar is an artist in California, in Palo Alto. She's an incredible watercolorist and she's the co-creator of this event. So her and I started that 30 by 30 and, uh, this is the sixth year of operation. So I actually didn't notice the fifth year happened. We should have made a bigger deal, but it was during, still during COVID. So right. um, it just keeps getting better and better every year. To give yourself the permission, right? When you say to all your friends online, I'm going to do this thing, let's do it together. And then you're stuck. Five days in, you're like, why did I agree to this? <laughs> yes. But now, you, now you're stuck. Now you gotta, Now you got to deliver. That's exactly what Inktober's like too. Like I'm excited to do the thirty by thirty. I may just choose a random month because I'm half. We're halfway. We're partway through this now. But um, that's part, what, or just, just join in late if you want, because part of the magic is doing it with other people. So right. when you yeah, maybe. once you once you comment on someone's pieces, then you're you're sort of rooting for them. Like, oh, I want to see what she does next. You know, tomorrow. Uh, there's one girl who's doing. Uh, she says she has something. She didn't say, but there's some reason she's got no time. So she's doing uh, ten minute sketches, just ten minutes which is not a lot of time, right? So I, I assume they're very small. They look small. When you look at them, you can see the texture of the paper. So she thinks about her composition all day, and then in, uh, whenever she does them, I'm putting words in her mouth, but like maybe she does them before bed or right after dinner or something. She just sits down and makes the thing she was thinking of. So that must be this, I think it's incredible how good they are for only 10 minutes. But it's because you have to do it. You You've got to deliver. You've got to put it up for tomorrow or people will ask you what happened, right? right? So doing it with something with other people is a different experience than doing it by yourself. And is there a sense of what size you should be using? Do you use prompts like Inktober? No, I, I don't use prompts. Uh, people have asked for it. I think we did it one year. We did Okay, we did it with this. Other, okay, there's this other event. I do two things. The other thing is called One Week, 100 People, which is also a simple idea. Can you draw 100 people in a week? That's pretty easy. It's in the title. What it is is in the title. So we used prompts for that one year. So it was things like uh, find a person walking a dog or a mother and a baby or, you know, uh, like a scavenger hunt kind of idea. Right. But uh, other than that, I don't because I sort of feel like I don't like to be limited by the by these types of rules. So I don't want to impose that on other people. If you're if you're already doing something like you paint dogs or whatever, then you should be able to do your thing. Yeah, but do it in the context of our activity, right? You shouldn't have to stop, switch to do some other thing, follow some rules, right? So, and, and we called it direct watercolor, 30 by 30 direct watercolor. 
because we were both direct watercolor artists, but then we both, uh, like she started to teach gouache courses, Uma, um, as a natural outgrowth of watercolor to move to gouache because you can intermix them and, you know, they both have many similar principles, but people will say, well, the opaqueness is cheating, right? It's another, <laughs> it's an extra ability. But uh, so, so, so we both sort of regret, I wish I could do it with oils, but you, but anyway, it's also my chance to reconnect with watercolor every year. So, okay, I'm rambling, but well, what was the question? No, I think, I think you addressed the idea of prompts and what about size? Oh, and so if you're if you're stuck for a time, that's why I mentioned the woman with the ten minute paintings. If you're stuck with time, then I mean, try doing them as small as you can. Like you could just do no no tans. You know this concept of no tans, yeah, uh, where the, it's a Japanese word for very small black and white thumbnails. You could do that, right? Like there's no, it's for you. It's for you. So whatever you have time to do, and you can actually deliver on. So if you want to do them really small, that's fine. I don't, I'm not going around policing people. I actually think you shouldn't make them too large because the, because you do, the goal is to do it in a day, right? And that is the limitation. That is one limitation of this society is it's a, I believe that you learn fastest when you're painting fast, but you will also run into a point where you want to do a more sustained painting that you physically can't do in one day. So this event is not for that. I was thinking of another event, which was, which I made, and, and I only make these events, the only reason I do these things, I mean, it's great to participate with other people, right? Like, sharing with other people is wonderful. But I do them because I, I want to do it myself, and I'm looking for a way to get, uh, get a free pass uh, around the house. I can tell my wife, well, the event is on, I can't help with the gardening. <laughs> I, I'm not... Uh, let's order in because the event is on. But I was thinking there's room for an event which is 100 days, one painting. So to challenge yourself to, a lot of people have never spent a, an incredible amount of time on one painting. Like a ridiculous, a non unprofitable, not logical amount of time on one painting. It's very difficult to do. Uh, you know, you can, you can drive yourself a little bit nuts, right? Or you could you could make pointless corrections. You could just end up wasting your time, but you could also end up sort of discovering kind of a, a new level of masterpiece that you couldn't possibly have done because you you invested the time in that in that one painting and improving it. Actually, you know, saying for instance, the entire central figure needs to be redone. Well, I would never do that on a normal painting. It's stupid. But if you said I'm not, I'm going to spend 100 days working on this painting just to see how it would be better or different. I think there's maybe a, maybe I'll start that because <laughs> I like to force myself to do it. That's an interesting thought. Instead of racing to the finish, which is what it feels like with all these smaller challenges is how do you feel your time? How do you ensure the journey is full between mm-hmm. the beginning to the mm-hmm. end of the painting, right? Like that's a, that would be a really interesting yeah. way to look at it. Social media also drives us to this idea of, of production that we have to, we right. Posting every day is a social media shtick, right? Like, so we're doing it because Facebook and Instagram loves us when we do it. So people won't do the more sustained work because how are they going to keep up with our posting schedule? Like, how will they be relevant online? So if there was an event where we were dedicated to showing our work in progress, maybe that would be maybe that'd be good. Yeah, the, the uh, milestones aren't well defined then because it's it's not like. Inktober, like even I, I like your your thirty by thirty because even with Inktober, because it's prompt based, mm-hmm. if you post your you know your drawing of Rocket, I ended up doing Rocket Raccoon. If you 
post your version of Rocket and everyone else is posting their version or their rendering of what shell means to them, then you're, you're already looking at like you're out of the queue, but you're 30 by 30. There's no set thing, right? It's mm-hmm. like you posted something, right? And you mm-hmm. posted something yeah. else to, tomorrow. And so you're not behind in any way that way. And the idea of a hundred days on a, on one painting, I think that work in progress shots would be pretty incredible. Yeah. And this, uh, so this is the other thing about, the direct watercolor angle like in some ways sometimes i regret that i'm that we fixed it around a media but in other ways it's a boon it's an advantage because we were like you say if you don't draw the prompt of the day even uh your piece goes by the wayside because everyone's talking about how all the it, the fun part of inktober is the interpretation like if the theme yep. is is witch somebody draws a wicked witch somebody draws a good witch like there's these interpretations of the word of the day so with direct watercolor, if we're all trying to do that thing, which is like the worst possible way to do watercolor, it's just, why are we choosing this difficult, frustrating way of doing it? <laughs> then we can, we're helping each other, right? Every time you look at someone else's piece, you're seeing something which will inform you. So everyone is helping each other automatically because we're doing the same thing together. So I, I think that's what's good about the prompt, prompt style. And I think that's, what, that's the upside of the focused media. Yeah. So the other thing a person could do with 30 paintings, 30 days is just rotate through mediums, right? So I right. have, if why don't in December we do, well, not December, nobody would do that. But in a, in a month without a public holiday, you could have uh, oil painting month 30. But see, that's the other thing is, could, could you do 30 oil paintings in a day? You, you can actually do a watercolor. Uh, yesterday I did five in one day. So you can't really do that necessarily with your acrylics or oil. Unless you do it, there's an artist who does it in an Altoid tin. Yes, yes. And yeah, so you yeah. could do something like that. and then Or uh, who's the lady that does the, you know those little palettes that are in business card cases? The art toolkit? Yeah, art toolkit. So she was, she's an Arctic explorer. That's right. So, I had her on the podcast. Okay. All right. Yes. I forget her name. I forget her name, but we did, uh, we have talked and- uh, the idea that every gram mattered for in your kit uh, was pretty. I, I like that. I like that kind of uh, rigorous thinking about your your supplies. Yeah, uh, Maria was on on the podcast, and uh, I use her art toolkits all the time. I've got three of them. I carry two of them yeah. because I haven't decided on the reds and blues I want. So I have uh, quite a few, and I just I need to make some yeah. decisions I, there. Yeah, I take them to life drawing because it's, it's your your tiniest possible kit you can. Bring with you to life drawing class. Yeah. yeah. Just clip it right onto the book. So, yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and just to highlight again, we're talking about direct watercolor. So the whole intent with the month of June is that you're not drawing the image, right? Like you're going directly to Yeah. I mean, uh, I again, I don't like rules and I'm not going to, no one's getting kicked out for doing a drawing or whatever. But, uh, and I, I, some of them I do with the drawing, then people say, you said you don't draw anymore. <laughs> no. It's hard to do a direct, like to do it without any planning. You First of all, you have to accept that the drawing itself, the perspective might not be as good as it could be. Or, you know, it may not. But what you're getting in return is the wet in wet action. The watercolor has this incredible flow and you have to do it before the paint is dry, right? Like once an area is dried, it'll never come to life again. So by working directly, you get the most color effects. So it's a trade-off. And if I sacrifice a bit at the drawing for more expression, I like that. And I think that we've attracted people that also think that's cool. So it's this little club of people that are doing this weird specialty, right? 
So I may have to try this. So I've drawn many times directly with ink. Like I use a, a Sailor fountain pen with a right, platinum carbon yeah. ink yeah. and a, a food aid tip. And I love just going straight to ink. If I'm if I'm doing something in my sketchbook that in, I intend to be watercolor, I will not sketch with pencil. I'll sketch with a Micron pen uh, with the sepia ink. And that's what mm-hmm. I will sketch with. I don't. But then the, the black line is always stronger it, it, than the color, right? It disappears because I don't push hard. So um, on, on some yeah. of my pieces, and, and I'll, sh- I'll show you one maybe after we're done recording, but the black will disappear because I'm, I'm coming at it with watercolor on top. Uh, but I've never done the direct watercolor. And so I'm really like that's sticking at the front of my head that I just, I'm going to do at least a few days of this of this event in June. Yes. Well, so that's, that's what I was getting at is that I'll often start with maybe a little sketch underneath because I'm, I'm nervous at the beginning. So I'll, the first ones I maybe do a little more drawing than I should, or if it's a difficult architectural subject, I might do a little more drawing. And then by the end of the first week, then you you find yourself getting into the zone and you start to be able to, you have, you have more confidence. And when you get tired, you're just like, I gotta, I gotta do this. And direct watercolor is just the fastest. And when you stop, stop caring about mistakes, then you get your gems, right? So yeah, it's part of the, all built into the activity that all the good stuff that happens happens just happens as natural fallout of doing it this way i love this i'm gonna try this uh, for sure and so we'll include more information and uh links in the hashtag and everything else as part of the show notes here but i wanted wanted you to come back again to that one week 100 people as well Hmm. Um, so is, is that a, a chosen time of year too and and what's the plan with one week uh, 100 do you know liz Steele in yes. australia yeah so she, she is the co-inventor. Uh, her and I were brainstorming, what can we do for a cool event? And so we we came up with that together as well. So because she has a huge online following um, that love to do activities with her. And a lot of her courses are based on this idea that you're you're drawing along with her at the same time. So she's doing the event and you're doing it too. That's, that's always fun. We wanted to, a lot of people will do urban sketches and leave out the people because they, they move. Right, and they so they're gone before you finish the drawing, and maybe people are not as good at figure drawing. You tend to to not do the thing that is maybe difficult for you. Like I skipped learning perspective and have all these ways to not draw the actual perspective. So it just stays a blind spot for you. So let's let's do an event where turn it on its head, and we're going to focus on the thing that's hard and draw those people. And and it, because we're urban sketchers, it did it does have this angle that I'm going to do it from life. If you want to do it from photos, that's fine too. I'm not going to censor anybody, but there is an undercurrent that life is best, even though it's more difficult. Because there's a, we can talk about that as well. There's this whole thing about going out and looking for people. You have, like if I'm going to go to a live performance and sketch from musicians or actors, I get to draw and I get to experience that performance. So my life is better on in two different ways at the same time. Like It's a great way to... It's a great way to get out and do things. So I like that aspect of it. And then the goal of 100 people seems like impossible, right? It seems like, how am I going to get that done? So it, it really has this subconscious thing that encourages you to draw them quickly. Like, how am I going to get 100 done? Well, I could, I better draw gestures. So we're not telling you you have to learn the way I learned from five-minute poses. But I can make this event where you will naturally do what I do. <laughs> 
Like if you want to succeed, you're going to start drawing faster. And when you get down to day four and you still have 25 left to do and you have to try to do 25 in one day or something, uh, does that math work out? But anyway, when you get in that situation, you have this moment of discovery of, that, wow, I can do this. And some of these drawings are good, right? That you wouldn't have thought until you were forced to do it. So it's a little judo trick that, yeah, we like to build into these things. So is this a particular time of year, the one week, 100 people? Oh, the the 100, 100 people, it's always in March. And uh, we pick a week. Of, uh, so I think it's the third week that we pick. So if, on my blog, Citizen Sketcher, there's a page for one week, 100 people where you can read all these official rules and facts. Uh, same for 30 by 30. I just have a go to my website, my blog, and we'll provide links for that. But uh, so the, the week is always chosen in advance, and it's usually the third week. And there's no official reason. It's it's actually because of the Urban Sketchers calendar, because it, it always had to fall at a time when people weren't getting ready for the symposium, okay. the, the International Urban Sketchers event, because Liz and I would always be going to that. And just a, it's a time of big of a lot of activity in the Urban Sketchers community. So we picked a time that was a dead spot. For me, it's a little bit early because it's actually still pretty cold in Montreal. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, and it's too cold to be out doing plein air painting. So, so there's that. I, I start coming out of winter every year uh, by doing one week, one hundred people, and getting out to the city. I often will draw in Montreal. We have the uh, underground mall. It's uh, built connected to the subway station. There's a whole shopping center under downtown. I'll go there sometimes find people yeah i don't think we have a whole lot of spaces i think toronto's easier but uh, ottawa's gonna be challenging it's always uh, public libraries are awesome yeah. uh and and live events go to go to see music shows sporting events are awesome because the people are so one of the tricks to drawing people in motion is looking for repetitive motion because they're not going to hold still for you right so sports like say for instance baseball i've never drawn a baseball game but as an example Every batter that comes up has to do the same thing. So you can draw the repetitive motion as if it was one person, right? Because they're all going to have to come up and take the same stance. Or the, the pitcher is always doing sort of the same thing. So sports is great for that. Uh, music is great for it because the, the performers can't leave the stage. Like they have to stay on stage, right? So mm-hmm. they're going to take certain poses with their instruments over and over again. So you can work on a drawing work on another drawing, and then you'll find your first pose comes back, right? If you have a series of poses in front of you, you just, whenever the, they take that pose, you go back and work on that one and gradually finish them all. That's a good idea. I'm really close to uh, where our senators play, so uh, maybe a hockey game is a worthwhile endeavor to, <laughs> to, to knock off 20 or 30 <laughs> people. Lots of people do their, uh, their kids. They'll go to a kid, like, a, you know, take your kid to karate and sketch right. them. So, yeah, my kids don't yeah. do that anymore. It may be creepy yeah. that who's who's this old guy <laughs> drawing our kids? But uh, I went to a I went to a hip hop dance class one time. Uh, I'm just like I'm just gonna sit in here and draw while you guys are are doing your thing. That was pretty fun. So they were all someone else's kids. Yeah, but. I guess if there's permission, <laughs> then it's okay, right? But, uh, yeah, yeah. The one that I, that gets me is uh, drawing on the beach. Uh, there's a Israeli artist, Marina. Mariana Grichik, I don't know how to say her name. I think that's how you say her name. Who uh, will go to the beach and draw? And I always think I I feel creepy drawing people on the beach, but for tropical countries, I guess it's more natural. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I guess it's better than you know video or, or photographs, but 
yeah, I mean, maybe it's more accepted because that's just a place where people sit in, in, in you know, in Ottawa and in Montreal, it's, you know, it's in a park, right? So, uh, yeah. yeah. So uh, I'm mindful of the time. So I, I do want to get to homework. Before I do that, though, I wanted to ask you, is there anything that you would like to try that you haven't or that you were thinking, uh, you know, beyond maybe a uh, hundred or a uh, hundred days for one painting? Are there other things that you'd like to explore? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's all ki- there's all kinds of things. I, I I want to get to sculpture. You were talking. You said you might. Would you ever do sculpture? I would like to try that. I've made a, f- a few small f- uh, f- attempts. Uh, I took a class uh, in stone sculpture, so I made one thing that sits in our garden. It's a sort of gothic mask cool. thing. But um, I would like to try it. But it's so impractical that you. Where do you put these objects? Like we don't. We have a not a huge apartment, so. <laughs> So I go in the, I can put it on the lawn, right? But uh, so sculpture will happen one day, though. It's on my list, and then uh, so because I'm a sketch artist, and my all my career, I've always said I'd rather do a hundred drawings than one long drawing. So that thing about hundred hundred days on a drawing would be a real stress test for me. But I I want to try graphic novels because they're based on how fast can you draw? Like there's just so much drawing required. I've always been scared off by that that commitment. Like it's a, it's a lot of drawing. Like to, to and so now I'm I think I'm getting to the stage of life where I'm semi-retired and I maybe have time to to take that on. So because I think it's where sketchers can really shine. That that the drawing can be sort of idiosyncratic and you're trying to convey the character through the drawing, mm-hmm. and it can combine uh, writing, which is something that through you know with blogging and. Writing about art is nonfiction. It's not not the same thing, but I I do a lot of writing, so maybe these two skills. So I'm I I'm going to try that next. That's actually I took a course. This is what I do when I'm interested in something. I find a course. So I did do a, a course with the Quebec Writers Federation on uh, the graphic novel because uh, Montreal is sort of a hotbed, and we just had the uh, the Montreal Comic Book Festival here. It's called uh, uh, Band Band A Festival. So. I, it's probably MBD Festival, right? Montreal Festival of Band Designate. It's just, just finished, like, last weekend. And I think they had a record of 30,000 uh, visitors over two days wow. to the, the event, and uh, they had 200 artists. Um, it's, it's kind of a hotbed for that, uh, this art form here in Montreal. So there are um, there are a couple of drawing groups, uh, Drink and Draw. I don't know, you have, do you have Drink and Draw? We may, not that I'm aware of, but it sounds like a good idea. So you go, they go to, you go to a pub or a cafe for... A drawing night. Um, so a lot of uh, the, the BD artists, the band designate drawers will go to that. So there's kind of a, if you're going to do it, it's a good town to do it. So, yeah. So, but I, I have this feeling it would take a year to have something to show, right? Like it's not something that you're going to be able to produce quickly. So, uh, so you hear, you've heard it, you've heard it first year and then you will hear nothing about it until it, it either succeeds or it doesn't. <laughs> Just, just like, just like the oil painting, I'm, I'm about to do this again. Just like the oil painting, I'm going to work for uh, maybe I work for an entire year in a graphic novel, and then find nobody cares about this book that I wrote. Uh, but I guess I can't uh, change my <laughs> approach. Well, I'd be excited to read that. I really like that idea as well. My daughter's, my younger daughter loves them, and I feel like part of the reason I do the podcast is because my voice will exist for them after I'm gone, right? So, th- oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. So I've, I've taken that on as another reason why I do the podcast. In some ways, I want to have some stories for them. So I, it's, it's, 
And it's interesting you mentioned NaNoWriMo earlier because I did do that one year and I did get... So the whole point in NaNoWriMo, I wanted to mention this when you mentioned it. For people who don't know what NaNoWriMo is, so it is the month of November and you write 50,000 words in 30 days. You don't edit yourself. You just write, I forget what it is, 1,667 words a day or something. I don't know. It's some ridiculous amount, but 50,000 words in the month. You upload your manuscript. It tells you, you that's 50,000 words. You win. And there's no money. Uh, there's a little certificate you get. But it, it, it changed my life in being a creative. I would get up because I have a full-time job, still do. I would get up at 4, 4.30 in the morning and I would write for an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. I, would light a, I would light a tea light and I would just write. And I did kind of outline it. I went with the whole hero's journey thing to be able to kind of lay out. And I, I did, uh, I used some tools I found online to do that. And I, I think it's at 65,000 words now, this, uh, this novel. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. It's, I, I think it's a worthy venture for us creatives. And it's, as you say, right, it's, uh, it, it really does, it can change your relationship with working and you have to experience it. You have to have lived the feeling of what it's like to do it on the 10th day or to do it on the 29th day when you think you're, you've wasted yes. your time. <laughs> But then you look back at it, you look back at it, and, and it was incredible, right? So we have to figure out, no one is living, very few people are living from their art, right? It's not, you can't make a living from it, basically. So we have to figure out how how can we be creative in a worthwhile way? Like, how, how are we going to get it done? Any trick to find the time to be able to live that life, mm-hmm. right? It's yeah. worth it. Yeah, agreed. So I always get to this point in the podcast where uh, I like the guests to kind of impart some homework onto the listener, something that they can take on as a bit of a challenge. And I'm wondering, Mark, what you would recommend as a bit of an exercise or homework for the listener to try to kind of up their creative game. Oh, okay. Okay. Yes. All right. Well, I'm all about posing challenges for people. So of course, I the, the easy one is you could join in 30 by 30, uh, but that's a big commitment. Or you could wait for next year's uh, one week, 100 people. But uh, yeah, there's, there's a, let's see, there's a lot of exercises that come to mind, but the one that I'm going to mention is this thing I call three times fast. I feel like when you're trying to sketch a subject you're sitting in front of, if you can identify when you've gone off the rails, like when this drawing is a failure, the faster you can quit, the better, because the more time you have left to do it again, right? Like if, uh, if you can draw for half an hour, and uh, you blow it at 25 minutes, you're doomed, right? So I like this. I like this idea of trying it three times fast intentionally. Like I'm, if I'm going to draw for half an hour, do three 10-minute drawings of the same subject back to back with no break. So this does a couple of things. It puts an artificial time limit on you, and uh, there's nothing like time limits for forcing you to take risks or. Like encouraging you to take a risk that you wouldn't take as you see that, like set a timer on your phone so that there's something ticking down in the corner of your eye. And when you have that time pressure, you'll do something risky because you've got to get it done, right? And you also know, I have another try in the bank. So, so it unlocks a kind of bravery. And then when you do your second try, I, I don't have the patience to do a study. I, don't, I want to do the finished one and I want it to just be the one and work, right? But this, with this trick, that I'm going to do it three times fast. Then the second one, I've done a study, and it's actually been a full attempt at the thing. So the second one, I have that under my belt. And then the third one, I've done it twice, so really it doesn't matter. I'm, I, sometimes I'm bored at this point, and I say, why even bother? And then the third one, you can have total freedom to like, 
okay, so I tried two good ones, now I'm going to do a stupid one. And then sometimes it's amazing, like I just do it with totally false colors or uh, just be really spontaneous. There's a different psychological state you're in, and you go through all of these three states within half an hour if you just try that. Draw the thing three times fast. I like that. So when you say draw, are we talking direct watercolor? Are we talking pencil or whatever you want? Do it the way you want to do it, right? But, uh, you know, as an urban sketcher, people love to draw in tint. So if you want to draw, then absolutely. I love direct watercolor, but I'm not going to say to people that you have to try something right. you've never tried. Uh, but uh, it's it happens to come from a direct watercolor mindset because the faster you work, the more the water plays, right? But dry it with uh, direct to ink as well, right? So that's that's another, another type of thing. Yeah, yeah these are the fast medium. Pen- pencil to me... I'm not dissing the pencil because you're a pencil artist, but how do you cover ground quickly with a pencil, right? It's so small. So uh, if I was going to do graphite, I'd want to use powder graphite Mm -hmm. to to like cover the page, right? So some people do that, right? They they use a cloth and brush it on. So the whole concept does lend itself to watercolor. So yeah, try it. Try it with direct watercolor. I mean, you mentioned 0.3 millimeter pencil. That's my favorite pencil. If I had to do something in 10 minutes, I'd probably dig out my two millimeter clutch pencil at least and then yeah. throw that sideways and off we go. But uh, right. yeah. So you could you could do it really small or you could do it really big with a graphite stick. Right. Right. Yeah. I used to do this in life drawing because I, I'm so impatient. When the 20 minute pose would come, I would do four, four fives in the 20. Uh, wouldn't always do the same pose. Sometimes I'd, I'd move around the room, do it from different spaces. Then you get more attempts at the subject in the small time. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned graphite powder. Maybe that's what I would consider doing is prepping three pieces three pieces with graphite powder and then use blue tack or a needable eraser to remove the graphite yeah. and then come in with a little bit of uh, yeah. 0.3 mil pencil at the end. When you start with oils, absolutely, you could try starting with a wiping out process. So they, they paint, you can use a brayer and just coat the paint, mm-hmm. coat the canvas and then lift out with a rag and solvent and develop everything that exact same way uh, as the, as you just mentioned, and then, then build on top of that. Oh, man, so many options. <laughs> well, this has been wonderful. I want to make sure that people can find you and, and find access, and I'm going to link to all of this. I'm wondering for your activity and what you're producing now, where can people easily find you with regard to web and social? Yeah, so I still keep up citizensketcher.com, like Citizen Kane, but citizen sketcher so that's where uh, you'll find all the urban sketching related stuff and so the last couple of years it's been mainly focused on one week 100 people and 30 by 30 but there's still a big archive of free drawing trips on there uh so check that out if you're into sketching if you want to see my painting that's just an art gallery with no philosophy then that's marktarohomes.com i also have some stuff up on youtube but it's really just casual and almost everything i have on youtube is on the blog as well so marktarohomes.com is sort of just you can see the uh, the museum of my oil paintings that are all in fact sitting in my living room and piled up on the walls in my bedroom so it's kind of a fun experience i really i have to say when i saw those paintings it reminded me of my trip to newfoundland and a lot of the uh, of the images mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. yeah the big uh, i really did think about big spaces so it, it, yes that was an inspiration we we did spend a Oh, into that gross yes. morning. Uh, yeah, gross morning yeah. up to uh, uh, Lanso Meadows, uh, where there's no trees left. <laughs> but uh, a bunch of them also come from the California desert. Right. We spent two Christmases going down to California, so uh, uh, Joshua Tree okay. in that area. 
Yeah, they're uh, they're incredible pieces. So I will link to all of this and link directly to the uh, 30 by 30 and one week, 100 people. Thank you. And so people get more information on that. So thank you, Mark. I This went in a total bunch of different directions I didn't expect, but I'm glad we went there together and we ended up back at this point. And this has been such a wonderful conversation. I am uh, excited to try a few more things here, which is always what I hope to do with the podcast. And I'm, I'm hopeful that the listener is feeling inspired about trying something new as well. So uh, thank you so much for your time and thank you for everything you shared. Yeah, thanks, Mike. And thanks to everybody who is listening. Drop me an email if you want, anytime. It's always great to meet new artists. Thank you so much. Take care of yourself. And uh, I'm going to try and do this uh, uh, 30 by 30. Yeah, catch and, up. Uh, We're 10, we might be 10 days in, so you can catch yes, up. I know can. I'll do a few at least. <laughs> so thanks again, Mark. Take care. And uh, we'll be looking out for your graphic novel. Take care. Okay, thanks. See you soon. Show notes, including links to everything Mark and I spoke about, can be found at drawinginspiration.fm slash 101. If you enjoyed the show, please follow, then share with someone you think may find it helpful with their creative journey. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Be kind to yourself and each other, and keep drawing. Theme music for this podcast is Acid Jazz, provided by Kevin McLeod. 